Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also find us on Facebook. We're there. Subscribe to the feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or right at nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can listen and, when able, leave reviews, help other people find the program. We also direct you to patreon.com slash political beats, a place where you can support the program, help it stay ad-free as it has been forever, essentially. Entry level there for support and voting privileges and a few extra things here and there, like a recent interview on David Bowie's Scary Monsters album. Uh, mid-level for early access and our shows at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level best friends, early access, higher audio quality, our monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered shows, playlists, and more. All of that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Now the part of the program where we thank some of our Patreon supporters individually for their financial assistance in keeping Political Beats commercial-free and bringing you this fine show. Thank you, Jim Sellers, Zach Bruckmiller, Anthony John Martyr, Steve Heineman, Kurt Fernstrom, Michael Shore, Tim Keith, Colin Rusk, and Paul Wheeler. Thank you for your support of Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing all right. And I really didn't know how to begin this episode. I didn't even have anything prepared. I figured maybe I'd start with an insult, you know, because you need to be cruel to be kind. And then I figured we just get into a big kick of plain scrap. And then I decided, hey, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding after all? Jeff is on Twitter at Esoteric CD. We welcome in our guest for today's show. He is the recently departed editor of the Wall Street Journal, now on assignment for its parent company, News Corp. Uh, Now a three-time guest of Political Beats, Matt Murray is back with us. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be uh, with you to talk about uh, this artist today. Uh, as we uh, as we begin, we uh, we ask our guest to tell us a bit about uh, what they're up to. A uh, little job change since the last time we talked, Matt, and uh, new assignment. Update people on uh, what you've been doing, what you are doing right now. Sure, uh, I was at the I was editing the journal for close to five years. Uh, then I spent a couple months uh, sleeping and catching up on movies and television and traveling with my family. I'm working on a few special projects for News Corp right now, um, which uh, I can't say much about, but I'm having a really fun time uh, being uh, up on uh, some of the big things happening in journalism and coming our way, but not having to get up every day and think, (laughs) what's Elon Musk up to this morning? (laughs) No one really knows the answer to that question anyway, (laughs) don't you think? Uh, Matt is back for a third time on Political Beats, and I got to say, It'd be you'd be hard pressed to find three better artists than the ones we covered with Matt. We did Talking Heads, we did Randy Newman, one of my favorite personal episodes of the program, and now he's back today to cover an artist that all three of us, as we found through like a two hundred email chain the past week or so, <laughs> deeply, deeply respect and love, Nick Lowe. So, Matt, we turn it over to you. Tell us why you love Nick Lowe, how you found out about him, and why other people should care about this music. Sure. Uh, Thanks. I I am really excited for this discussion. Uh, Part of what I think uh, makes Nick Lowe 
so resident for so many people is he he's a guy who's been around for gosh uh, over 50 years now and he probably touches on as many styles in popular music of this period as anybody else he's just a polymath who uh seems to absorb everything and, and uh, can, can do different styles and make them his own. Um, and I think that even going on the research here, I've been reminded that uh, he's, he feels like one of those people that everybody respects, but he's very personal. Uh, and it's interesting to read and catch up again on him, how strongly divided people's opinions are about particular albums or tracks or styles or periods, which is part of the fun of, uh, of Nick Lowe. I first heard him, I'm sure, uh, in 1979, uh, maybe his biggest year ever, uh, when Cruel to Be Kind came out. Uh, I probably first heard him through Armed Forces, though, uh, um, and that album. Both, you know, Cruel to Be Kind in the middle of the Doobie Brothers and Disco, of course, jumped out at you as for the power pop perfection it really has. Um, and that style was everywhere back then, the Basher style that he became known for. I, I don't think I was aware of it then as all Nick Lowe, but uh, as I subsequently learned, he's right at the crossroads of that of that new wave uh, period in London in all kinds of interesting ways that we'll get into. Oh, I can't take another also then you get uh, what's so funny about peace and love and understanding at the end of armed forces which is uh even then even for kind of a dim uh, ninth grader um that i was then uh hands out as uh, what's this about what's going on here this is something different um uh and you knew something special was happening with that artist um I think, like many people, uh, I lost track of in the 80s, and then when I was older, came back in the 90s as he got into what he talks about as his mature phase, uh, where his uh, song craft, uh, I think, really deepened. Uh, he tried to take on more adult themes and go in a new direction that we'll talk about. Um, and, uh, and he continues to this day to be somebody that I find myself turning to and listening to a lot. You know, he's not an artist. There's some artists I really, really love, but, you know, you kind of outgrow or you kind of use them up. I find Nick Lowe endlessly fascinating, both watching his evolution uh, and the way that his music uh, can, can be personal and consolatory, also challenging and interesting. And to keep going back, as we've been doing, into different parts of his catalog and, and finding his influences. I'm so glad to hear about the true happiness you found And how your wretched life Has been turned around I contrive a tear of joy For your empty nights now at an end But what I really want to know Is has she got a friend? 
I'm in wonderment and awe. He's a funny songwriter because he can touch on almost any area. He's not a confessional songwriter, though. He, he almost is a professional songwriter. His craft is absolutely impeccable, and his sensibility uh, really stands apart. You know, he, as I said, he's a polymath, but he's got a really unique wit, uh, musical diversity. He kind of finds a way to both take the music very seriously, but not take himself too seriously at the same time. He's never sentimental. I think uh, I think it's very hard to find him being sentimental. And, and part of what's interesting about him is that, you know, there's there's certainly some in different stretches and in different in different periods of recording in his career, but there's really very little that's just bad. Uh, he's really such a craftsman, and he, from the very early days of his career, I think, was so focused on thinking what makes a song work, what makes an audience respond, um, that there's just so much to find in that music as you go through it. And so, to me, he's inexhaustible. What well, I could go first, but I think, Scott, I have a feeling that you and I probably found Nick Lowe the exact same way. So why don't you actually tell your story first and then I'll follow up at the end. Yeah, I, I bet we're similar, but with one twist, which uh, I'll, I'll throw in. I, I want to keep this relatively short, only because Matt has already spoken and made many of my points. I, I think Matt did steal my notes because I swear to you, and I, I, I show you a picture. Uh, I have the word polymath also on this first page of notes. <laughs> He's a guy that has ingested and appreciated and is able to sort of transform everything he's heard in music uh, to his own ends, whether that, that be rockabilly or soul or R&B uh, or, or the 60s pop. Everything comes through when he writes his music. And, you know, the way that I came across Nick Lowe is absolutely through the Ellis Costello records that he produced, those first six, I think, that he produced from the very first one up through Trust and always seeing produced by Nick Lowe. No, actually, Almost Blue. He, oh, no, no, you're right. He didn't produce Almost yeah. Blue. That was Billy Sherrill, but he was there because of the family connection. Yes. Got it. Um, and so I, I see the name, and I, I knew Cruel to be Kind because that was a video that got played very often on VH1 in the uh, in the early 90s with uh, actually his real wife at the time the video was was filmed Carlene Carter so i knew that and i knew Nick Lowe and then the the further i got into that scene the pub rock scene which we'll have to spend a few minutes on in a bit of course the more Nick Lowe pops up whether that's in relation to uh, Graham Parker whether that's in relation to Dave Edmonds or Rockpile and as everyone knows my personal favorite Huey Lewis and the News, who back then was in a band called Clover uh, that Nick Lowe loved. And, and those guys had a bond from the from the mid-70s on, Nick Lowe and, and Huey Lewis did. So Nick Lowe kept popping up in all these different places. But I will tell you, the moment that I fell into his music specifically was, as, as often is the case, through my radio days, but not through my music radio days. So when I was young... Jonathan Brandmeier was a huge uh, radio host in Chicago, and he had a, a segment called the Crack Me Up Line. So listeners would call up, and they would uh, tell a, a joke, and if they got the Jonathan Brandmeier and his co-host Buzz Kilman to laugh, they won a prize, right? So it was the Crack Me Up Line. And the, the, the theme, the opening for each one of those segments was a, a, a montage of songs that included Cracking Up from Nick Lowe. 
I didn't know that at the time. Fast forward, goodness, 10 years, I'm working in Chicago for ESPN 1000, and it's one of my first weeks running the board. I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of all the, the, the technical aspect of the show, getting the show on the air and playing commercials and doing all that stuff. And every day we do a, uh, a, a, an almanac segment where we wish people happy birthday or anniversaries, whatever it might be. And one of our hosts had a birthday on this day. And we played, he was an actor, Harry Tynowitz. He was a, an actor in a film called Up the Academy with Ralph Nacchio and a few other people. And there's a, a segment we played in which Harry lets out this hairy laugh. And I was able to manipulate it so I could, I could play it over and over again. And the guys on the show could not stop laughing. It's one of, one of the highlights of my technical producing career because <laughs> I, I, I just I, I made those guys lose it on the air for how I was dropping in this laugh. And so our production director at the time, Artie Kennedy, who used to work for Brand Meyer and, of course, remembered that song, brings it back and, and cuts this up into a promo for the Matt Yurko and Harry show set to Cracking Up by Nick Lowe. That meant someone had to bring in Basher to the studios. Well, I might have taken Basher home for oh, a week you. or I two or three. And that is when I fell in love, deeply in love, with Nick Lowe and his solo work. A dim night time, a crack of dawn. It comes upon me without warning. If I were gone, then I would shoot. I'd tear the head out by the root. I'd make a knife out of a notion. All at sea in an ocean of emotion. I don't think it's funny no more. But that Basher collection is one of the finest single-disc best-of collections you can find that truly represents a great cross-section of an artist's career. So I'm not usually a greatest hits, best-of buyer. I like buying the albums themselves, and there's no reason you shouldn't have at least three or four Nicklo albums in your collection. But you do far worse than to enter into his world through Basher. And so I've probably talked long enough because we have a lot to get to. But know this, Nick Lowe is central to my love of this style of music. I, I, I adore what he's done through his career, both early, eh, mid, somewhat in the 80s, and especially that career revival in the 90s, which is so, so good. This episode, we are going to have a hard time cramming everything in. But Nick Lowe is a, a seminal figure in, in my music love and my, my musical knowledge. Okay, first of all, you know, he, he is a central figure in a lot of things. And I'm going to return to that point in a moment, Scott. But, but the first thing I want to point about is that, you know, Matt, it's, it's just no surprise at all that the three artists you've chosen to come on this show for happen to represent three distinctly weird and idiosyncratic songwriters and David Byrne, <laughs> Randy Newman, and Nick Lowe. I mean, like, I mean, it's just you can get a sense of what you like in music and what your sensibilities are. You, you're looking for that, that very it, it, that left of center approach that's just off kilter and it does not take the straight path 
And that's what Lowe did with his lyrics and with his music as well, in a way I'll discuss in a second. But the other thing I really want to emphasize, this returns to the point that, that Scott was making, is how Nick Lowe is important also because he is like the one man who is the hub to the spoke of the whole wheel of the United Kingdom 70s down-to-earth style of rock, the whole genre that's non-punk. So you have the bloated legacy acts like the Stones and Zeppelin and all that, and then you have like prog rockers. And then you have the DIYers. Now, you can either be like a punk post-punk band like the Sex Pistols or going into Joy Division. Or at that time, you were pub rock. Okay, What was pub rock? It sounds very meat and potatoes, doesn't it? But what it really meant was just like the eternal verities, you know, like a good beat, clever lyric, a timeless tune, a great rhythm and a clever like, you know, a clever hook. To, to keep you on the line uh, and, 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 you know, nothing too fancy, but nothing too like, you know, lost in its own nonsense either. Sort of, a, uh, I guess you might describe it as a semi-conservative retention of the eternal verities of songcraft, which is why this was a subculture that was hugely popular among rock critics throughout the early 70s, even though it never really broke through in a major way commercially. But that's where Niccolo comes out of. And that's where all of these other characters that we are going to be referring to. I mean, Scott mentioned them already graham parker dave edmonds the whole guy gang and rock pile elvis costello and yes even huey friggin lewis um by the way i'm, I'm convinced that scott secretly wanted us to do a nick Lowe episode because he <laughs> considers it a gateway drug to an eventual huey lewis one which you've Nothing already promised you've already promised it ah, i'm nailed aren't i anyways the thing is is that low songs are so similarly kaleidoscopic just as his associations and the way he brings all of these people together into a coherent scene his songs in his early phase in particular are like almost hilariously curate eggs in the sense that they have that similar like multivariate influences I can't compare your list to any other list. Music is so fine, so fine. I can't compare your list to any other list. If only they were mine, oh, mine. Oh, darling, little darling. Wanna tell you something more? You do something. say he's a polymath i say he's a magpie and i will delight throughout this episode in pointing out all the very little tributes the little lifts the hints the pastiches that he throws into this stuff but we're about to embark upon a really long journey that we're going to have to skate through at least the early part of just to get to like the meat of it because this man believe it or not has been around in music since just 1969 1970 hey scott do you want to set up the first part of it you want to explain who brinsley schwartz is or do you want me to I can do so. Uh, and by the way, I've mentioned we've mentioned this a few times on different shows where a particular book has been important for. And I didn't read the book this time. That's yes. okay. I did. We pick each other up. I've had this one for a while. Uh, Will Birch, who who actually wrote a separate book simply about, well, not simply about, but generally about the pub rock scene of the time, also has written Nick Lowe's biography it's not an autobiography and it's not a, a uh what do they call authorized biography but nick Lowe did participate in it so a lot of stories from him a lot of stories from people around him but it's called cruel to be kind the life and music of nick Lowe. 
I know Matt's read it and and I've read it and, and Jeff will someday. But uh, the, I'm Will, sure, the Will Birch book is very good and and some of the information will uh, will be uh, conveying to you comes comes from there. But Jeff mentioned Nick Lowe's been around for a long, long time and he knew this guy named Brinsley Schwartz well before they started playing together in a band. They met at school at Woodbridge School back in 1962. By the way, I love the name Brinsley Schwartz. It sounds like two last names. It sounds like a mo- it sounds like a car, maybe or something, or a motorcycle. You're gonna hop on the Brinsley Schwartz and rev it up. I yeah. love that name so much. Well, I worked as a band name later on. Too, yeah, but, that's but, why. They, that's why you gave him the name. It's like, what better name are you gonna get than the guy's actual name? Well, they tried. They tried <laughs> Kippington Lodge. And oh God, that didn't yeah. work for them as a band in uh, 1967, 1968. Uh, that th- that band existed before Nick Lowe joined them, Brinsley Schwartz's band called Kippington Lodge. And Nick joined them in 1968, uh, playing bass and becoming very quickly the band's main songwriter. They ended up changing their name in late 69 to Brinsley Schwartz. It was a, a vote of the band, except Brinsley. They essentially told him, yeah, we all voted and your name, that's the new band name. It's Brinsley Schwartz from here on out. And that's how they went forward. Touchstones here, we'll talk uh, a little about this as we hop through their albums, but, you know, thinking uh, a little CCR, certainly The Band, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and uh, and some Prague, uh, and some especially yes. early There's on. There's a lot yeah, of yes, yes in there, too. Some yes early on, too. Uh, they, had, uh, they recorded a few tracks with Mickey Most, a guy who's come up in a number of conversations the past few months because he uh, was uh, recording The Animals, yeah, he was man. recording Herman's Hermits, he was a guy who was identifying these hit songs in the late 1960s. So they tried recording with him, and, and Mickey Most at some point says, yeah, this is not going to work. I, I, I just don't dig it. So they, um, they, they set out on their own, and they, they found a management company that was going to help them become big stars. And almost as interesting as the story of the debut is the story of the, uh, the Brinsley Schwartz hype that, that fell apart and that didn't work for them at all. And this all concerns the release of their debut album, self-titled in April of 1970. I mean, this is almost like a, Nick Lowe could have been a, one of those forgotten guys in a one-hit band that was overhyped <laughs> and flopped, like Moby Grape or something like that. Although Moby Grape, that album's actually amazing. Um, but yeah, so the first album, they go out there, to they play, I think the story is that they, they're flying to play, is it New York or something like Fillmore, that? Fillmore East. Fillmore East in New York City, so it's a big, high-profile gig. Oh, oh I think, I sorry, I think opening for Van Morrison, in fact. Yes. Oh, yeah, and those those gigs actually were taped. I actually think I, yeah. they may have those. I, I know the Van Morrison gigs are actually pretty well-known. But anyway, so apparently the music critics that were coming to see Brinsley Schwartz were delayed by, like, you know, violent airplane issues and uh, had access to an open bar. And when they finally made it to the gig, they were all ruinously drunk and wildly unimpressed. And I, I, I think it's hilarious. And, and they all get panned the, the band and say, well, this band's all hype. It's not going to matter. Now, I, I would say it's a great story. But if I'm listening to this album, I'd have panned it, too. I mean, it, right. it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that impressive. We don't want to spend too much time on these first two records. There are some things here I like. I like that prog rock song. Of course I was going to like the prog rock song scott i mean lady constant which is sounds a little bit like yes at the end and it definitely don't sound like pub rock serpent coiled around your waist oh contrary lady hit the face from me do 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 
beyond that, this thing is, uh, it, it is, it is very hilarious to hear Nick Lowe, even at his earliest stage, just, well, basically just throwing any old thing at the wall. He writes every song on this record. Every one of them is his. And this is him in his earliest stages, just experimenting with stuff. And of course, it's like a kid playing with Legos. It's not very sophisticated yet. Matt, do you have thoughts on this first couple of albums from Brinsley Schwartz, especially, I guess, this debut? No, I mean, I, I agree with Jeff. Uh, it's uh, it, it, Crosby, Stills, Nash was everywhere then, and so there's a lot of that on that first album, and as you guys say, yes. Um, what I find interesting about Niccolo that starts right here is he, he tells a lot of stories about how drugged up he was, and he lost a year to being on acid, and he didn't work very hard. Um, but really, I think there's a quiet engine of ambition under the surface there, working pretty early on, watching these other bands and saying, geez, they, something they're doing is really working, we're not doing it. And he evolved very quickly. They came back from that first record with the second one very fast. And uh, he actually does develop pretty quickly as a songwriter, uh, 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 as Jeff says, um, uh, it's, I love it's funky like an, it's, it's on like, that second album, despite it all, which is, you know, starts doing country rock, which is an omen. <laughs> uh, you'd return to it much later. But there's this one little thing called Funk Angel, which to me sounds like the first real Nick Lowe, Nick Lowe song ever written. It just has a snappy beat, little horns tooting away in the background. I think Brinsley Schwartz also plays the saxophone as well as the guitar on these songs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's it's just like. All right. Suddenly, I, I I heard something that could be, you know, a relative of "So It Goes" or something like that from the first album. Oh, there's that point. Well, the sun went down, the moon came up, and she screamed so loud it almost blew my mind. So I cruised on down the mainland and watched it all go, just like yesterday. There's Van, Mor- there's Van Morrison in that too. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, like glad tidings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, 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 pretty, yeah. He, pretty, he starts he starts pretty quickly uh, developing a style, and you know, you you can talk about the third album, but clearly when Ian Gom came into the band, they went to a different level. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. I mean, I, I think I think the, the, where Brinsley Schwartz takes off, we can take these next three albums, so really all as a piece. Silver Pistol, uh, 19, Nervous on the Road, those are both from 1972, and then uh, the third one's called Please Don't Ever Change. It's a bit of a compilation album, but it's got some pretty neat little uh, odds and ends. But Silver Pistol's where they get another songwriter. Uh, he's a rhythm guitarist named Ian Gom. I don't know if he sings. He sings harmonies. Lowe is still singing all the leads on this stuff. Uh, but believe it or not... Um, I don't know if he ever much went on to do anything else, but his songs are strong contributions to this band. Like they're not weaker, really, in my mind than that, like the stuff that Lowe is writing at the time. And I think Silver Pistol for me is is the Brinsley's Wars album that stands out the most. And you can just take it on on Lowe's contributions alone. I love the song Unknown Number, uh, which is to me, I think that in the last time I was fooled. Again, when you go and listen to the early stuff, you think, where's Nick Lowe's voice going to emerge from? You hear it first coming out of song like that.
Gale's a strong song. He's got a strong middle section. Um, when I went back and was listening to these uh, for the podcast, also one of the things that occurred to me uh, with Lowe is that pub rock scene, you, you know, this was emerging around the same time as that third album. You're playing in smaller venues with audiences that you're really interacting with, often who are intoxicated. And you get the sense that that really sharpened him very quickly. Uh, you have to entertain. You have to have songs that have bits of business. These songs are filled with hooks and things that keep you engaged and entertained. And then you quickly move on to the next song. You get a lot of feedback very quickly, I think, from the audience. You're not doing these bloated arena shows, which was part of the ethos of pub rock, right? Almost resisting that, doing, going lo-fi and being in touch with your audience. And and sometimes I listen to the, when I was listening to these albums, it's like a, it's like a sculptor sculpting away <laughs> Uh, sort of the excess marble and winnowing it down. And I, I think not only does Lowe develop quickly as a, as a songwriter and a singer, but he very quickly starts to hone in on hooks and the things that make songs go. It, I particularly think uh, uh, it's worth seeking out some of the live stuff of Brindley Schwartz because they were a pretty famous live band. They opened for Wings at one point because they are really so directly focused on less on the studio. These, these early albums are not uh, very well produced and as much uh, as, as on the audience that they're playing there's, to. There's this one beautiful show. I found it on YouTube just when we were doing research for this episode. It's them in 1972, so it's right after Silver Pistol. And uh, they're playing at this big, you know, jamboree get together. It's a great set. And then they do a song. They do a cover of Going Down the Road, Feeling Bad, which is, of course, at that time, they probably just picked it up recently from the Grateful Dead, who had done a year before. And it's a perfect and, and Lowe sings it. And it's a beautiful little fusion of all the influences. You can see everything that Lowe was going to end up doing, like, you know, 30 years later down the line. He still has some of these influences flowing through his blood. Going down the road, feeling bad. I mean, I think Elvis Costello was the same kind of massive deadhead, and this is the same. I believe this is the era when they first met. July, 19, July 1972. Okay, that's like when this concert happened, actually. Yeah. So there Elvis you go. Is a, I mean, he's a fan, and he comes out, and he wants to meet Nick Lowe, and so he goes to a Brinsley Schwartz show and introduces himself, and uh, the rest is uh, history of years Well, we will resume that story a little bit later, my friends. But so for now, uh, Scott, what do you think about, first of all, about this album? And also, I think, you know, well, let's just talk about, like, you know, I think Nervous on the Road and Please Don't Ever Change and before we get to the last Brinsley Schwartz album that yeah. sort of ends this part of his career. I hate to kind of be cliched, but I, I think... Uh, I think it's actually, a, you know, a, a, just a stair step uh, through all of these albums. I think 
Uh, each one is a little better than, than the last. I think the songwriting improves each one a little more than the last. Nervous on the Road is, I know you were saying there's, uh, what, uh, Funk Angel is where you sort of hear him begin to have a Niklo style of songwriting the first time that that, that uh, reveals itself. For me, that's, uh, uh, that's Surrender to the Rhythm on Nervous yeah, on the Road. Yeah, I, I, I need to say that. Right, that's, that's the one where, that's, that's the early classic Niklo song, uh, sound. Uh, and and he's able to coax a great performance from the band on that track too. Uh, these guys are not quite rock pile when it comes to performance on each and every track. But that one sounds very good. Oh now guess what? Guess what happened? Guess what happened? This is also around the time on, on Please Don't Ever Change. As Jeff mentioned, it's kind of an odds and sods album before their, their final official album. That's when they're opening for McCartney and Wings on tour. There's some interesting things on that fifth album, uh, like Play That Fast Thing One More Time, which is kind of an essential pub rock tune written by Nick Lowe and done by many different people around this time. Including Redone Again for Rockpile. Right. So, yeah, right. exactly. So, that, so we'll, we'll, one, we've talked about that one. That'll pop up again soon. And I think even back to Nervous on the Road, uh, there's a cover track called uh, My Home is in My Hand. And again, that's where I think the band starts to coalesce and gel. That's how that, that song is how the band should sound, and that's how the band's going to sound on this next album. But Nervous on the Road and most of these early albums really do suffer from this sort of light limp production right and they meet someone who would very much help them uh uh on, on the next album the new favorites of brinsley schwartz yeah and, and i think there's also a tension that's emerging here too uh the tension is between Lowe and the rest of the band because you can tell that Lowe has serious pop sensibilities as well and and the title track of don't ever change which is a goffin and king cover i think it's one of the most it is a magnificent pop gem and it's sung in tight close harmonies it's done with a with a really kind of a graceful delicate little arrangement it could have been a hit you know i love you when you're happy Sweet as you are 
I mean, I think it was a hit originally, obviously. That's why it's a, you know, a Goffin and King classic. But it, it, it says everything about where Nick Lowe's heart also was in a way that maybe some of the other more meat and potatoes straight ahead stuff wasn't, you know, where was where the rest of the people he, he was playing with, their hearts were directed. He was going into a weirder and more aestheticized world. And I think I guess I, I think that shows up right front and center on the first song on their final album, the new favorites of Brinsley Schwartz. And this is the first, and I think in a lot of ways, most famous Nick Lowe song of them all. Although, ironically, you know, even though Matt already mentioned it earlier, a lot of people think of it as an Elvis Costello song. And this is his original version of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. I like this version a lot. Now, I will never deny that Elvis is is the one with the fire and the fury. It's the superior take. But I'm this is not like a pale version. I actually really like this one too. It's a little lighter, it's a little floatier, but it does just fine for all that. amazing when you hear this version first how much of what the song was later is there it comes right out of the gate that right. pounding rock feel right away what Elvis really brought feel. to it yeah what, what, what Elvis really brought to it uh is conviction uh, Nick Lowe is Nick Lowe is is a little more diffident uh, and a little cooler and a little uh, more uh, sarcastic. Uh, Elvis Costello, deep down, can't help but be kind of earnest. And I think he brought to that song when he got around to it sort of like, this is a real anthem. And, and Nick Lowe has said that that opened up his eyes. But I think, so I don't, I don't the part I don't like in the uh, Brinsley Schwartz version is the talky part where he does the little monologue that sort of makes <laughs> you think, does he mean this or not? It's a little, right. it's a little corny. But an awful lot of the song is there from the beginning. But what I think is interesting, and I, I know Scott wants to talk about it on this on this last album when I went through, is and it's partly that time in music, but how quickly they went from uh, in a matter of years from this you know Crosby, Stills, Nash, Frog thing to to I mean a lot of these songs are really almost soul songs. Mm-hmm. And part of Nick Lowe's sensibility really, there's a great line he has in that Will Birch book where he says. Uh, Pub rock was for people who went through the psychedelic era and then realized it really wasn't their cup of tea. <laughs> um, and really, in some ways, Nick Lowe's heart of hearts is like at about 1962 or 63 pop hits. And you can feel uh, in some of what they're doing, him, him gravitating that way, particularly in this, in this last album. It's funny. I would locate it actually rather specifically in 64, 65, but I, the sentiment exactly is correct. 
it's it's the pre psychedelic era. There's a craftsmanship, mm-hmm. you know, like a Beatle like. I mean, listen, there's a Hollies cover on this album of an obscure B side of of Stay from uh, just, you know a, a, an early Hollies single from '63 or something like that, and it's just like a really well written, like you know, Mersey beat song, and they rock it up, and it's a really great track, and it you would have to be an absolute lover of obscurities to know Holly's <laughs> B-sides and revive them. And by the way, that's another thing that's going to characterize Nick Lowe all throughout his career. He's just got a beautiful eye for a cover. got to stop and talk a bit about Dave Edmonds because yeah. this is where he enters the picture officially. Now, Dave Edmonds and Brinsley Schwartz met back in 1972 while they were recording uh, the previous or one of their previous albums. Um, and they were in studio for Nervous on the Road. And Edmonds was recording at the same studio and he actually popped in and they recorded a track with them and they didn't use it. They thought it's not quite what we want. Now, Dave Edmonds is the guy who had a top, uh, I think it was a top 10 hit in the UK for sure, and, and, a, and a hit here in the US with I Hear You Knockin', 1971. But as On we'll... a very weird album, by the way. That's from his debut, yeah. right? Yes, yes. This is, okay, just, to, I want to let, you know, Scott resume this, but just to set Dave Edmonds up, he's a weird guy he's, in a lot of ways yes, he because is. he's a roots rocker, but also he, his debut album was all self-recorded in the sense that he actually like overdubbed all the instruments. He played the drums and the bass and he got some people in to do some stuff. But like he did the hard part himself. So he had that weird DIY mentality as well. And he was kind of the first one to really make it on the entire scene. So mm-hmm. when he comes in to produce this, it's kind of like the granddaddy of the scene is stepping in. But yeah, Scott, continue. Yeah, he's a weird guy. I mean, he's a weird guy. He's a he's a hermit. He's a recluse. He's mysterious. Uh, as you mentioned, Jeff, he does things himself, especially on the first album. He is devoted to recreating, not replicating, but like literally recreating the sound that he has in the he- in his head of like fifties rockabilly. That that is the that is the uh, platonic ideal of of music, according He's to a David. Fascinating Edmonds. guy, yeah. And so he comes in to, to produce the new favorites of Brinsley Schwartz, nineteen seventy four. And he just very quickly shows these guys, look, there's some really simple things you can do to make these songs sound better, thicker, double track, use some echo in places, um, you know, play around, have those vocals, backing vocals surge in places, have these guitars really come up and pop in places. And it is incredible how one switch flipped brings it all together. I think there's a big leap between what the band had done previously, and how good the new favorites of Brinsley Schwartz is. This is a really good album.
And at the same time, I can understand how it's their last album because considering how far Nick Lowe has come at his songwriting and how he can, I'm sure, very quickly identify that Dave Edmonds understands how to get the most out of these songs. It's very easy to see him saying, hey, guys, <laughs> thanks. This has been great. We've got this thing figured out and uh, uh, I'm leaving. And that's essentially what happened, although they would meet again very soon because the guys in Brinsley Schwartz would go on to become most of the rumor, Graham Parsons' backing band. Graham Parsons? Or Graham, Graham Parker. Sorry, Graham Parker. <laughs> Graham, Graham Parsons could never keep a backing band together, that's Scott. Right. You know this. Graham Parker's backing band, uh, and they'll meet again very soon. There's really good stuff on this new favorites album. I think The Ugly Things is one of Niklo's best songs from this particular era on this album. Uh, power pop with that 50s rockabilly core that Dave Edmonds brings. Uh, great use of piano, those oohs and ahs in the background. And I think Jeff is a big fan, and rightfully so, of I Got the Real Thing, where you oh, yeah. hear Edmonds sort of take that Phil Spector-esque production, bring it to the table, and the Beatles-like chords and the harmonies and the melody. That's another standout track from this album. Well, I had always treated Love just like a game But since you taught me how to play I ain't never been the same So I just gotta shout it uh, How sweet it is to tell That my lonely days are at an end And my lonely nights as well Because I Pretty great album. It's a fine way to wind up Brinsley Schwartz's career, but you're right. It was obvious why they had to move on. And before we move on to what I guess is going to become, you know, the Edmonds era, this is a fascinating thing. For the next several years, really, what a lot of people, I mean, always consider to be the real core, the peak of, of Nick Lowe's career. It's actually kind of twinned with all the work he's doing with Dave Edmonds on his own albums and on their side project called what's well, not even a side project that's the thing called rock pile it's the the joint band that they farmed out to both artists albums before we get there and before we explain the whole stiff records phenomenon which explains why they had to work under various pseudonyms i want to talk just a bit about nick lowe's quote wilderness year which i find to be hilarious it's like 1975 you know he's not really doing much of anything at that point so what is he doing apparently he recorded and wrote a bunch of disco themed songs or like they're not disco songs themselves they're songs like let's go to the disco and everybody dance um or or he had a whole he had a single devoted to the Bay City Rollers by a, a, a pseudonym band called the Tartan Horde called Bay City Rollers We Love You. And I gotta tell you, it's like all sped up. It's like a pop track with the, with the voices artificially sped up to sound a little bit juvenile and like chipmunks and all that. It's still the most lovable pop song in the world. <laughs> like Nick Lowe couldn't even help it. He wrote like a joke single and apparently it was, quote, as they always say, big in Japan. Number and one in Japan, in fact. <laughs> Got the number one in Japan. It's a fake juvenile horde. How do you do this? These are the wilderness years, which for any, for most people would we considered wildly successful. As it is, they're really entertaining.
But I guess before we get to, um, we have to explain what happens, you know, with Stiff Records. So at that point, um, Dave Edmonds, who might, you know, he Mueller might have just worked with, was signed to one label. But then along comes this indie startup label known as Stiff. And, and by the way, do you know who we have to thank for all of this happening in, in the way it played out? Robert who? Plant. Robert Why? P- Robert oh, Plant. Swan Song. Yeah. Right. Robert Plant loved Dave Edmonds. Robert Plant, like, we have to sign Dave Edmonds on Swan Song, which was Zeppelin's record label through Peter Grant, their manager. And so that's why Edmonds ended up on Swan Song. And Peter Grant, being the uh, thick-headed manager, strong-willed manager that he was, would not allow Edmonds out of that contract for anything, which is why we have the situation that Jeff's about to explain. Yeah, and by the way, just so you know, on the, the credits for all these subsequent albums are known now, but at the time, I don't think they listed any of the musicians because they wanted to keep it "quote unquote," you know, a, an official secret. Even though if you listen to the music, it's obvious that these people are, you know, are pretty simpatico with one another. So you have a situation where Lowe is playing on Edmonds's albums, and he's supplying many of the songs and indeed the hits for those albums, but he never sings lead on them. And then he has his own solo career, which is just getting off the ground with the formation of Stiff Records. Now, I mean, does anybody really here, I mean, unless you want to meet to continue monologuing, does anybody want to explain what Stiff is and what it meant for the, you know, the beginning of punk in, in the UK? independent labels it wasn't emi who had the sex pistols it wasn't columbia it wasn't one of the big majors it wasn't polydor or something like that it was instead a local group uh started by a guy named jake riviera uh decided to like say hey we're gonna sign some of these hot new local groups and one of the ones that they immediately wanted was nick Lowe. and why because nick Lowe decided why i'm not just gonna be a singer and a performer i can also be a producer as well and he immediately became the house producer for stiff records and boy, you know, the records aren't the best produced in the world, but they're still some of the greatest music that's ever been made in the world. So I really love this entire little brief period that also explains why Nick Lowe is now going to be doing things separately, but also with Dave Edmonds. He starts, I think, with his first solo single, which is a song called So It Goes. It's the first record on Stiff. Uh, so It Goes, backed by Heart of the City. And this is, I guess, formally the beginning of Nick Lowe's solo career. So who wants to take it from here? I'd say a couple things. Uh, uh, we can talk about so it goes in a second. But one thing I'd add that I think is uh, so important is, you know, people sometimes think and thought then is Nick Lowe a punk rocker. He wasn't a punk rocker, but he was so important to the sensibility of the music coming out, and he is so much of the connective tissue of punk rock 
to this kind of new wave music because he's they called him basher pretty fast because he was let's get in the studio let's lay it down let's make it loud let's put the drums at the front let's get out um and that's partly shaped by that pub rock needing to entertain the crowd get in and be fast and his ethos of sort of serious hard rocking but but also kind of a lightness about it and even a little bit of uh, humor around it is so important to so much of this music and part of why it stood out it, you know it, there, there's, there's a, you know there, he's obviously listening to everything i think there's a you know feeling dan but these overproduced heavily heavily studio oriented albums he is just central with what he's doing as a producer here and also as a performer in bringing a new thing to life that just jumps out at everybody and it did feed this whole movement very heavily so okay, I, Matt, I think Matt, that's Matt, an important that part is, of what he's doing. Matt, that's such a good insight. And and I think it goes actually to really actually feeds perfectly into So It Goes. Because the observation I have about this song is that it is so casual and relaxed. It's it's very, you know, there's nothing fancy. There are no unnecessarily unnecessary frills, but there's nothing lazy about the arrangement whatsoever. You've got that really beautiful, sparkling little guitar solo from Dave Edmonds in the middle of it. You've got the careful harmonies. Everything is in its right place. It's all like thought through before they go into the studio to put it down. But the work was in the arrangement. It's not in the production, like, you know, strings and all of this and that. It's on this, okay, we've played this live a hundred times. We know what works well. We, that was one of their live favorites. That's, that song was a live standard for Rock Pile, as the band will be explaining in a moment. Um, but, yeah, that's the Nick Lowe aesthetic during this era. There's always something clever going on. There's always some real intelligence and craft. Almost the craft, self-effacing craft is the way I would put it. He's working hard to maybe sh- to eliminate the scenes, to make it so yeah, that it... it-, it- yeah. Well, and so it goes has a hilarious uh, lyric. Yes. Uh, when yeah. it came together, that 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 is kind of deliberate and random at the same time, and exactly. delivered by you know this handsome guy with this kind of wry smile of this floppy hair. And where uh, it's going, way, nobody knows. And so it goes, but where it's going, no one knows. And so it goes, and so it goes, and so it goes. But where it's going, no one knows. But where it's going, no one knows. Yeah, and he's and he's still he's still singing that song today, by the way. He still does it almost fifty years later because it's a really sturdy song. And part of the ethos that's going to feed into this album in this period too is uh, what you said, Jeff. And here's a song, and if you don't like it, well, in two minutes I'll be on to my next song. And I just think I and also keep going. Yeah, and I also think the A and the B side also of this single represent both sides of Low so well. So like A side is the clever pop song, so it goes. That's the Nick Low solo artist, and then the B side is Heart of the City, which is another classic rock song. You know, that's Rock Pile. That's the Dave Edmonds pub rock. You know, straight ahead, give the audience what they want approach. So right from the beginning, actually, you get like two key aspects of who Low was going to be, Scott. You guys covered most of this. I I I know I don't think we I, or Matt alluded to this, but you know, and and Jeff wants to do this through the show, which we will. But identifying all these places 
Uniqlo takes and steals and borrows and repeats some things. So it goes has a little more than a little reeling into the years from Steely Dan through the oh, verses. Yeah. Uh, this is after uh, they had been on tour with Thin Lizzy. And so there's a little boys are back in town that also goes into how he wrote and, and pulled off. So it goes. Um, it's Heart the, the cadence of, of it's his accent, the cadence in the way he says his lyrics. That's the boys in the back, and that's the boys in back in town. Part. Yeah, and and the swing, and it's just worth saying now because he's a bass guitarist. Swing is very important to Nick Lowe, and a lot of his songs really move, and that's part of the fun of uh, so it goes among many others. That's important to a lot of what he does in this era and overall. It's one of the reasons I love him because. It's rhythm and it's movement and it's boogie and that bass drum foundation is so important to so many of these songs. And it's why, I mean, yes, uh, the Bay City Roller song was a bit of a joke, but part of that wilderness era, there's also songs, Let's Go to the Disco and Everybody Dance by the Disco Brothers. Like that 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 foundation of rhythm and, and the great bass and the fabulous drums really sets the foundation, I'll use the word again, for so much of what makes Nick Lowe's songs work. And Rockpile and Edmonds, it is that rhythm that is so important to the songs. We're going to be returning to his fascinating rhythm tracks later on during the show. I mean, but the interesting thing is that this opening single did not immediately lead to his debut album. Instead, he turned around and worked with Dave Edmonds instead for his, like, you know, like the first of their, like, big collaborative records where these guys are all basically intertwined with one another. And it's Get It, which is a pretty good record. And, you know, this isn't a Dave Edmonds show, but it sounds like it's going to be because Lowe donated so many of his famous songs to him. I Knew the Bride is a song that, that Nick Lowe was would later on go on to recover himself. It was on Rose of England. I don't like the remake that much at all. I love the original Dave Edmonds one. And of course, the obvious, the funny thing about it is it's, it's a perfect Dave Edmonds track because it's the most obvious pastiche in the world. It's just, you can never can tell by Chuck Berry. Say love you, say the old folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a really great version of that song. And I'm always up for a great Chuck Berry pastiche. Well, When she was married to Sam, nearly 27 years before. She had to change the style a little, but it was just fine. They stayed up all night, but they got it finished just in time. Now on the arm of her daddy, she's walking down the aisle. Then she catches my eye, and she gives me a secret smile. And this is also the era he's producing before his album is released. He's producing and writing for Edmonds on Get It. He's producing Elvis Costello's debut in 1977. A year or two earlier, he produced the debut for Grant Parker and The Rumor. He'd come back. I think to he did the Damned as well. Out. He, he yes. did new rose for. The, I mean, this guy's really busy. <laughs> <He's> just, 
So that explains why he didn't immediately go on to his first solo album. But, you know, the stuff he contributes to Edmonds there is great. Here Comes the Weekend is just, it, that's a Nick Lowe song in all but name. And in fact, it's the kind of thing that's so poppy, it seems a little strange coming out of Edmonds's mouth. to the Jesus of Cool. Uh, that would be Nick Lowe's debut album. And before I mention it, I want to point out just one of my favorite little silly... <laughs> Nick Lowe has a great sense of humor. And one of my favorite little musical jokes uh, of this era is, of course, fans of music may know that in 1977, David Bowie released an album called Low. We talked about it a lot on our Bowie episode. It's fantastic, folks. Well... You know, Nick Lowe was offended by this effrontery. He's like, how dare you steal my name for your album? So he released his, his next solo release, an EP, just called Bowie. B-O-W-I. <laughs> he took the E off as well. <laughs> and it's a great EP. I mean, it has it has an absolute one absolute classic song on it that's going to end up on the record. So I don't know if we should speak too much about it. But I really do love that, that, that sort of sense of humor. And that sense of humor, you know, exemplifies... The Jesus of Cool, uh, the title of which I actually used as an email when I was in college. Uh, I'm not even lying. I was. I just thought it was such a great name, and I was. I was so so uh, blasphemous. <laughs> I did not care. I used that. I love this title. The album is a magnificent uh, smorgasbord of all of Nick Lowe's musical influences filtered through his own weird lyrical style. I think it's going to be on my top two at the end of the show. Everybody loves this record. Who wants to start? footnote that you might like the title of Jesus of Cool, but there was a lot of fear that the American market would not like the title, so here it was known as Pure Pop for Now People. Right. Uh, and it's Which is also a pretty, by the way, a pretty good title as well. 
Yeah, I think that I think that line had been. I think that was used. It was on if the, I'm not mistaken on the Bowie yes, cover. Yes, correct. Uh, uh, and, and, and and you know, it, uh, one more word on his humor, just on that, which is we're so used to it now. We grew up in an irony drenched uh, culture, but Nick Lowe is really kind of right at the forefront of this sort of like, is he serious or is he joking? Right. Uh, kind of of of, of, of cultural attitude. He, he was very. You can tell he was very cool and charismatic and people want to be with him. And that's important because that's kind of what the album is about, which is the album is almost, you know, a, a pastiche of, as you say, Jeff, every influence. And the lyrics can be serious uh, or jokey. Um, and there's something for almost everybody on this album. In some ways, it's like the ultimate audition tape uh, in a funny way, except it's so well produced. So. Um, we already talked about So It Goes, which is one of my favorite songs of his ever. Um, I, you know, uh, he comes out with Music for Money, which is a very kind of strong, gritty rocker. Very quickly goes into a song a lot of people love. That's one of the famous ones from this album. I love the sound of breaking glass. That's really as much about the piano. He doesn't really oh. play it much anymore because he says it's not a song, but as a sound experience, it's just fantastic. fantastic. It's Bob Andrews, yeah. the ex Brinsley yeah. Schwartz guy in piano, and I don't know if I'm stealing your thunder here, but the, the story. No, there's, no. There's two. There's two stories about some of these songs from the early first two albums that are really interesting, and the, the story behind. I love the sound of breaking glass. Is uh, going back to a tour that, that Rockpile was on. So by this point, Rockpile is is playing, and Rockpile's Edmonds and Nick Lowe, and it's uh, Terry Williams on drums, and it's uh, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Billy Billy Bremner on, Billy on, Bremner. on guitar. Uh, Billy so Bremner, yeah. It's, it's four of those playing, and they play play as Rockpile on the road, and they're a they're a red hot live band, and they get chosen to open for Bad Company on the road. And they're blowing Bad Company off the stage every night to the point where Bad Company begins shortening their set. And that's not enough. So Bad Company brings in another band to play between Rockpile and Bad Company so they don't look as bad. And so at some point, and they're, they're drunk and there's a lot of drug use around this time. And heck, they're rock and rollers in the 70s. And so after one of these shows where they open for Bad Company, they go back and destroy the hotel room. And that is where the idea of I love the sound of breaking glass comes from because they went back and just tore up this hotel room. Mirrors, windows, you name it. That's the inspiration for this song. And it's one. Uh, I mean, I th it's it's really it shows how how he can be so good and thoughtful at putting together a sound, whether or not he's got the lyric, and how he can just lay down a fantastic track. I think one of the reasons you may not perform it anymore is 
the track stands so well on its own, there's nothing more you can do to it. Yeah, um, I, mean, I know yeah. there's – go ahead, Jeff. No, I mean, I was just going to say that one one thing about I love the sound of breaking. One other obvious influence is David Bowie again. I mean, you yeah. know, and it, it it shows up not only in that, but on music for money, which I, I pointed out in our notes. It's just such an obvious tribute to the Breaking Glass drum sound, the song Breaking Glass off of Low, which Nick Lowe had already parodied and obviously was listening a lot to. Uh, has that that sound? It has the Bowie harmonies in the background, all of that. But yeah, all these influences seep through. I'm sorry to interrupt on that. Continue. No, no. I mean, it's on that one. I'll say there's a low tribute album I have, and I won't name the artist, but there's somebody who, who cut a version of the sound of Breaking Glass, and it's a respected artist. It just is meaningless without that sound and without that Bob Andrews. Yeah. Piano. Look, we could talk about every song here. I'll just mention a couple, and then I know there are songs you guys want to talk about. But uh, I really like Shake and Pop. It's just a bouncy song. Mm-hmm. A lot of these songs in this album too are about the road and their life on the road, and the, there's a couple songs about their music. Uh, companies and the record industry, but with that kind of Jerry Lee Lewis piano, hmm. it is a real great rocker. Shake and Pop is terrific. I like No Reason a lot. That's the first time uh, that he's got some reggae influence in there. And actually, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the rest of the times that he goes to reggae, but I like... I like that kind of slinky uh, uh, line coming in. I like the chorus. It sneaks up on you very much. Um, I think uh, 36 Inches High is a great cover. Uh, It's by Jim Ford, who was a country singer who influenced him a lot with his weird sensibility. And it's got a funny mix of these sort of, uh, you know, sort of modern digital tricks uh, with, with, uh, with his voice. I don't know if you guys want to talk about Marie Provost, but um, oh, oh yeah. you probably do. But sure, yeah. what do you do? Go for it. Well, I mean, you know, that 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 was a notorious song because it's a slight, uh, well, it's a slight elucidation on a famous silent movie actress who was found dead at home. And the story told in the song is that she was dead at home so long that her pet dachshund got hungry and... Uh, uh, nature took its course, uh, and uh, in, in reality, it seems that you know, maybe all that happened was that the dog was trying to wake her up. Uh, but Nick oh, Lowe, but it's uh, become part of like urban legend. I mean, it was even in the X Files once. It's it's like so famous that the dog will eat the old lady that dies. But, but the thing yes, about that, yes. and the thing is that Nick Lowe finds a way to actually dehumanize it. He talks about the, the little dog's eyes, like the hungry right. dog's eyes. <laughs> like, like and, I don't see it from here, from the dog's perspective. I mean, he's got to eat after all. It's so bad. And, and, it, and, there, and it's one of the places on this album where you can feel Nick Lowe's evil grin with that yes. what is the law what, what exactly is it uh, she, she was, was a, a winner, winner who became, who became a, a doggy's dinner, dinner. <laughs> she never meant that uh, much to me yeah uh and 
you can you can feel how much he's enjoying being naughty with that and shocking people with that. Uh, but with a but very much with tongue in cheek and with a good spirit about it all. And uh, it became one of his memorable songs for that reason. But by the way, it's also just a really catchy song with the singing in the background along. It's beautifully arranged. Oh, these it's glorious, these glorious Beatlesque harmonies come soaring in underneath. She was a winner. And it's like, la, la, la. It's like the, the parody even is in the style, is in singing something that seriously with that much attention to like the craft and then singing that ridiculous lyric on top of it. That's what makes it so wonderful. If it was if oh, it was shambolic, it wouldn't be nearly as funny as as it is when it's just done so well. talk about some of the songs that i know that you want to talk about but it's it's the the humor again it's still kind of a new sensibility even calling a song little hitler right uh, uh, and making light in a weird way of hitler this is a different kind of humor and sensibility that he's putting out there that that really feeds the whole album even though he's very serious about the craftsmanship yeah i mean listen the, the thing you about this album is that every single track literally all 12 tracks are notable there are no bad ones there are no weak ones every single one has something interesting to say about it so we can't do that i'm gonna let scott go first and then i'll see what he decided not to discuss <laughs> well matt did a great job laying out a lot of these tracks and why they're so good uh it is almost comically funny it is funny how accurate he nails everything he tries on jesus of cool on the cover the cover of the album is him in six different rock star poses the the, the hippie and the rocker and very the, symbolic the, yeah. the double neck guitar and dave edmonds bottom center that's that's nick Lowe as dave edmonds uh and he's unconvincing in all of them in picture but he is totally convincing when it comes to the music itself and that's such i i, I think a uh, a testament to what he was trying to to pull off Country, soul, prog, rock, rockabilly, whatever it is. Simon and, and Garfunkel. Right. The and, Night is a Simon and Garfunkel song with bleeps on top of it. That's so all it is. Good. It's so good. That's such a great song. And this is, I, I can't say specifically the first, but this is one of those first albums that is so uh, uh, referential to rock and roll's past, but not reverential to rock and roll's past. We understand it. We love it. We want to do something a little different, and we want to have fun with it and put a little. Oh, just ingredients twist for the mix, it. yeah. Right. And look, as I said, Matt covered a lot of this stuff. Uh, Shake and Pop, which is kind of a rewrite of They Call It Rock, which was a song Rock Pie was playing live at the time. Uh, Breaking Glass is one of my favorite, favorite Nick Lowe tunes because, again, it's really just the rhythmic construction of that song that is so much fun. I love that foreboding. 
thumping beat. I'm 36 inches high. Once I was a soldier, I rode on a big wheelhouse. Silver pistols at my side, carrying the flags of war. Struck off the man who fell in the cannon drawer. I never got over being a soldier. Once I was a tax man. The one I will mention that has not been talked about yet, which was a revelation this time around, and I'll mention here uh, just very quickly. I talk a lot about my son, who's. 10 now for goodness sake and and we'll drive around and listen to stuff and he'll say put that song on my playlist i like that one so he's got a playlist that's like 200 songs long all good stuff and i put on jesus of cool and after every single song he's like put that one on my playlist put that one on my playlist so nutted by reality right near the end of the album first of all a great phrase that i think that the book says he had just overheard somewhere and it's like i need to work that into the song okay by the way people, americans may not realize what that means they may think it means something else it means you basically you got hit in the head or head butted by reality which is a great image it's in and, and and so this song is just it's I, I just it's just brilliant and it is two minutes and 50 seconds and in that two minutes and 50 seconds he completely and utterly nails the Jackson 5 with this yep. bass line that is totally reminiscent of I Want You Back. And yet, again, unique to Nick Lowe. That's the first 55 seconds or so of the song is this Jackson 5 almost pastiche, which is brilliant. And then slams into a Band wonderful Paul McCartney outtake from Band on the Run, as Matt said in an email. Oh, That's exactly oh, what oh. I was thinking. It, it sounds McCartney. like Miss Vanderbilt or something like that. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Ho Hey Ho and all that. And heck, <laughs> he had toured with Paul McCartney and Wings. He knew all of those tricks um it's a perfect little two-part song uh kind of nonsense lyrics uh cut cut off castro's i can't remember what it (laughs) is they castrated castrated castro Castro, Castro, um and even at the end he's still playing with us the way that song ends you expect there to be another verse that maybe you know you go up and uh, key shift one more verse but no it just sort of ends it just sort of trails off and, and echoes away Again, subverting the expectations, playing with the expectations that we all know from knowing the same songs that he knows, and he twists them. Uh, Nutted by Reality is one of those real keen uh, pickups that I had this time around listening to Jesus of Cool. Well, I heard they castrated Castro because he was the people's friend. They told him once and they told him twice, said I ain't gonna tell you again. They put a bit of pressure on him, that's when he told him what they could do. So the work came down from the noise and town, set up a jungle rendezvous. I said, Ula. I said, Ula. We said, Ula. He had been living in a different world, and he was not I 
I mean, you guys basically covered every song on this record, but I'm proud of you. It means I, I, I don't have to waste any time. I really don't have anything to add <laughs> other than I'll point out, this is a little factoid, that No Reason, which I love. I love that kind of reggae okay. scrunk. Every, all these UK bands were addicted to this this sort of scrunky sound, and it basically originates from one tune called the Rodette song. It was a big hit for Ian Dury back in like 1975 or something like that, and Elvis Costello covered it. Uh, you can hear that. I, I was telling Scott it's on the two-year, two-CD reissue of this year's model uh, but no reason is nick lowe's version of that that like nick lowe does reggae but does like you know you know punk or new wave era reggae and i think it really it really rocks because he's doing it he's doing it with rock pile which is another thing we need to emphasize here and actually will carry me into what i'm gonna you know what we'll talk about next is that at all points it's the same essential personnel playing on all of these albums it's the four guys it's dave edmonds nick lowe Billy Bremner and Terry Williams. And, you know, of course, they have a couple of, you know, friends and family come in other than that. But, yeah, you're going to see these guys, and they're all part of this sort of, I guess, you know, you know, multi-headed hydra that, because of label issues, isn't recording under one name. And also probably because it has two sep- two guys with very separate, you know, artistic visions. Um, Nick Lowe's and Dave Edmonds, those are already in tension even here at this at this remove, as we're, going, as we're going to find out over time. I can't imagine what it would be like if they had to share albums and vocals every single time out so i guess i think before i go on to talking about what he's going to be doing with rock pile and edmonds i want to point out something he does with a band that isn't them it's with elvis costello and the attractions and that's the single he does right after jesus the cool it's called american squirm you know people think about what's so funny about peace love and understanding is you know elvis costello's greatest hit it was actually the b-side of this single which was just done after it was recorded, kind of as like a fun. It's like, hey, let's just go bash through with one of your oldies, right? That was the idea, and it came out on the B side. But the fun thing about American Squirm is that this is when Elvis, I think, or when Nicklo was producing this year's model, and so they play on this, and it is just one of the most delightful pop confections of his entire career. What is he so happy about? I made an American Squirm. I made them uncomfortable with my Britishness and my awkwardness, and it goes through all these wonderful wonderful little pop choruses and changes uh, again the difference between low and a lot of these other guys was just the love of the craft and the love of the hook This is the other story to tell from Will Birch's book. Do you know what American Squirm is about, Mr. Jeff? No, I don't. What's the specific anecdote it involves? So the specific anecdote that American Squirm involves is Elvis Costello and the Attraction's infamous appearance on a little show called Saturday Night Live. When uh... they began playing, um, they began playing uh, Less Than Zero, and of course, and a few seconds radio, in... Radio. Elvis says, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to play this song here and launch into Radio Radio, which got them banned from the show for a little bit of time. But it is Nick Lowe's. Nick Lowe is there 
for the performance at 30 Rock, 8H and 30 Rock, and it's his remembrance of seeing Lorne Michaels to the side of the stage fuming and uncertain of what to do with this British rocker who wrecked his live show by changing the song <laughs> in the middle of the of the of the of the show. But wait and a second, Scott, isn't Lorne Michaels Canadian? He is. But ah, Nick Lowe didn't know. Honorary ah. American. It's NBC. It's That's American television. Actually, I, you know, Nick Lowe would appreciate that irony. That he didn't <laughs> even realize that the guy was Canadian after all. That's wonderful. I didn't actually. I didn't know that. See, I, it's funny. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his, but I don't actually bother. I just listen to the music. I take the music as an item. I draw the connections that I can from the music. And this is actually how I find myself to a very devious thesis that I'll be discussing <laughs> later on, um, which begins very here so, actually yes, with yeah. with the next album this is kind of like when they go to work on the rose rock pile there are there are fantastic live recordings out there you can find them on youtube of just like you know concerts that were broadcast on wnew new york of rock pile playing such good raucous shows great covers they really kill it and it's it's from this this era this is a was it four tracks on wax um, tracks on wax by dave edmonds which again nick Lowe plays bass he writes i was like five four six he songs writes a lot yeah yeah, Heart of the City gets comes back here, and I actually think this might be the definitive version of it, the studio version on, on, on Edmonds's, even with Edmonds singing lead vocal. But he also does a song called Never Been in Love, which seems a little unprepossessing, unprepossessing rather, but uh, has, a, has a chorus that's going to just gonna come back later on in a weird way, like a, like a good penny actually turning up. What do you guys think of this era, which I guess actually also takes us to repeat when necessary, an album that was recorded simultaneously with the next one. But why don't we talk about Edmonds's stuff here and then go on to Nick's next album? I really, yeah, I really like this era of, I mean, <laughs> anything. These songs that, like Deborah, What Looks Best on You, these are great Nick Lowe songs, like just well-written lyrics, really clever melodies, and it's just, they're just, given over to dave to sing so like i always consider them just the same part of his career as this yeah and uh, for me it's repeat when necessary which is recorded at the exact same time as which later. doesn't feature any nick Lowe originals right which is a little weird but oh, nick plays oh. on it and there are a couple of billy bremner songs that are on there uh, there's a graham parker song that's on repeat when necessary i i think that's the the apex of the edmonds solo experience which again is all rock pile but the ones that are that are released under the Edmonds name tracks on wax four is excellent uh but repeat when necessary leads off with one of the greatest songs of the entire pub rock scene which everyone has a hand in elvis costello wrote it and nick plays on it and dave sings but the uh the version of girls talk that that dave Edmonds has at the front of repeat when necessary is just a pristine piece of of pop rock it's wonderful and there's other so Billy this is one of the very few that actually broke through i think in america a little bit right dave edmonds's version of this i remember hearing that once or twice on yeah, the radio a little bit but, yeah i mean i mean it, 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 oh. the thing about the song is that it's just it's a magnificent production as well as everything else but scott yeah. what were you gonna say i was gonna say there's there's another song billy bremner's song the creature from the black lagoon which is just amazing fantastic song
they cover a Queen of Hearts on here. Uh, they cover a Clover song, Bad is Bad, which would later be on Sports, the Huey Lewis and the News album. But the one thing I wanted to mention very quickly here is, is uh, there's a there's a, um, a documentary, short documentary. It's only about 50 minutes or so called Born Fighters. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's the recording of these two albums. They did it at the, I mean, literally the exact same time, the exact same people, same studio, everything. So they're just bouncing back and forth. We'll do a Edmonds track and a Low track. And this one's going to be on, repeat when necessary, this one's going to be on Labor of Lust. And there's a scene in which they're recording uh, Sweet Little Lisa, which is on repeat when necessary. And they bring in Albert Lee to record his solo and his guitar part on Sweet Little Lisa, which is really fantastic. And the studio is full this day. It's got all a rock pile. So Bremner and Williams and Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds. And who else is there? Well, uh, Phil Lynott is there from Thin Lizzy just, just, to, just to watch him play. Who else is there? Graham Parker is in the studio just to watch Albert Lee play. Huey Lewis, in fact, is there to watch this take place. And think of all of that talent and all of those amazing singers and songwriters and musicians and in five years' time, one of them will be the most, one of the biggest pop stars in the world. And it's not likely the guy you think it's going to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the least likely fellow in the room. It is, it is funny. I like the idea of, of viewing these as like a, a double album. But in order for it to make sense as a double album, you need to realize that at this point it was sort of a joint uh, a joint venture, right, between Edmonds and Lowe, you know, like pooling their forces. And so that's why they're doing all this stuff together. I just want to point out that uh, – well, actually, you know what? Before I make my, my learned thesis uh, known to the world, Matt, what are your thoughts on the, on these records? Before we, and also on the Edmonds stuff because we'll obviously discuss Labor of Lust on its own. Yeah, I- yeah, um, I, I I don't have much more to add. I know you want to. I know your thesis, which I, I think <laughs> I, I know you want to get to. I, I think I think what's interesting is I think that Lowe and Edmonds at this point are helping each other become better. I agree with the uh, with Scott. I think repeat when necessary is great because Lowe really pulls it out of him. But Nick Lowe's songwriting and his also his he, he's also his his sort of. Um, uh, you know, uh, cheekiness. Uh, he, he's not as reverential as Dave Edmonds. Starts right. to already to me break out a little bit. Uh, he he's a sponge. He's sucking up everything. Remember that as part of this scene at this time, uh, we haven't even talked about it. But he does uh, the Pretenders. Uh, yeah. He gets involved with a little bit. He's dating Carlene Carter, and he's getting involved with country music. And uh, it's before long, is even going to be. Uh, 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 spending a little time with her uh, stepfather, Johnny Cash. And he he's just, he's making Dave Edmonds better. And Dave Edmonds is such a great performer and star and has such a solid base. He really helps Nick Lowe. But Nick Lowe starts to pull away already here and become a different kind of a figure leading into Labor of Lust, which I know we'll talk about in a second. But that's, 
I yeah. think that their back and forth here is really interesting, but you could already feel the tension. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely about that. There's, there's a bit of a stiffness to what Evans was doing that, that, that I think Lowe was, was about to transcend. I just wanted to make a point, and if you've seen me on Twitter, well, well you're hearing this after it was done, but you may be familiar <laughs> with it. I laid it out there with all the clips, but okay, the song I mentioned earlier on Tracks of Wax 4, which has never been in love. to me that that's Nick Lowe's song that Nick Lowe was producing Elvis Costello Elvis Costello heard this song said you know what I like that chorus but I can do better and so he wrote Girls Talk which uses the exact same melodic phrase in its chorus it's a much more elegant and smooth song with a literate lyric as obviously befits Elvis Costello Then he was a little embarrassed about the fact that he basically ripped off Nick Lowe's song. So he said, hey, Nick, here, why don't you use this? And he gave it back to Dave Edmonds to sing. But one of the reasons why this is one of Nick Lowe's greatest achievements actually is not only because, you know, he sort of wrote it, uh, but also because the arrangement is spectacular. This is uh, all Nick Lowe's doing. The difference between Elvis's version and the one that was a hit for Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, and, and you know, the Rock Pile Gang is immense. It's so much more up-tempo. There are extra added chords. It punches the chorus home in a way that is just completely missing from Elvis's much more laid-back version. And I, I would actually contend that it's the greatest production achievement of Nick Lowe's career. It's so, it's so shimmering. It's just, it's, it's really yeah. an accomplishment. But I can't say in every single way. I mean, it, it's such a perfect kind of pastiche. And, and the roots move onwards, by the way, because here's the hilarious punchline is that somebody else was listening, and that's Bruce Springsteen, who also transparently ripped off Dave Edmonds's version of Girls Talk for Out in the Street on the River. And he was, you know, he, he was recording Elvis Costello, like, real related material as outtakes during this era. It's obvious that the chorus, that the lead-up to the chorus of Out in the Street by Springsteen is based on that as well. These guys were all listening to each other. It's just a wonderful stew of influences. Monday when the phone man calls
I guess it brings me to uh, The Labor of Lust, which is 1979, the album that was recorded simultaneously to this. You know, you talk about Nick Lowe pulling away. Well, what evidence would you want of it that's more convincing than this, which sounds so different from a rock pile album? This sounds like a very smooth and fascinatingly assured pop new wave album, maybe more like an Elvis Costello album, I might point out. But an Elvis Costello album that Costello himself wasn't even going to get around to making until around Trust, I might point out. But uh, this is the, this is why they were separating at the time. But I love Labor of Lust, and I think it's one of again. I, I would agree with most everyone else. This is an all-time achievement, and you know, it starts with "Cruel to Be Kind," and it never lets up. is one of the greatest pop songs ever really is and actually what's interesting that's an old brinsley schwartz song we should that's say. an old that one i've heard the old very one. late at the end of brinsley schwartz but the production here is fantastic there's a story on this which uh scott will know he, yep. he didn't want it on the album because it was an old song and they were looking for the hit and the columbia and our guy uh, a guy named uh, greg heller who i think is still alive and still friends with nick Lowe, insisted it be on there and they had some back and forth and they put it on uh the album reluctantly it's the second time and it, it, it nick lowe's two biggest songs ever are right. probably what's so funny about peace love and understanding and cruel to be kind and in each case he claims he didn't realize what a great song he had um but they put it on there and they stacked it with those vocals behind it and this is the killer version for me of that song uh and it's such a great way to open up the album The album, every song works here. You go right from that into that kind of deep vocal on cracking up with that kind of sleazy bass line. And then you go right into uh, Big Kick Plane Scrap with that Terry Williams drumming coming out of there. Everything uh, flows so well on the album. Every song here, it's a little fuller to me than Jesus of Cool. The songs are just a little more developed and a little fuller. But again, this is an album you can put on and go all the way through. You don't want to skip anything on it. It's one of my all-time favorite records, period. 
And uh, what I got to, I guess, a little bit later, I would have been, you know, my early 20s before the first time I heard Labor of Lust the, the whole way through. And I listened back and I listened over again. And what sticks out to me is something I'd mentioned earlier. This is such a rhythm album. It is such oh, yeah. a, 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 just a collection of nonstop grooves, whether it's Cracking Up or uh, Skin Deep or Switchboard Susan or Dose of You or Big Kick Plain Scrap. There's something so primal about that beat from Big Kick Plain Scrap and the way he uses the phaser on the vocals for Big Kick Plain Scrap. start with what I think is the ultimate rock pile song. I don't think the band was captured better at any point in this era than on Born Fighter. That song blows me away every single time. Put shameless it on... Huey Lewis sentimental promotion, Scott. I'm sorry? This is shameless oh. Huey Lewis promotion. <laughs> I know why. It's because he plays harmonica on this It's thing, not. Right? I didn't even have it in my notes, to be 100% <laughs> honest. Uh, this song, start to finish, just rips my face off every time I hear it. From that galloping Terry William beat, uh, Billy Bremner's backing vocals in the chorus. He's the high voice in, in the chorus. I do like, I, will, I did write down harmonica solo, but because... Uh, of the difference between the first solo, the harmonica, and the second just insanely ripped off a a Dave Edmonds' guitar solo the second time around. I love the way the bass descends in its chorus. It is a 100 out of 100 rock pile performance set to yeah. a fantastic set of lyrics from, uh, from Nick Lowe. The, the beginning of the song, here she comes again blowing everybody's circuits. Girls like that bring a lump to my pocket. Everybody says I can never get her. I've been a lot of things, but I never was a quitter. I'm a born fighter. And then later on in the third verse, this idea, this picture he paints in, uh, in between the pages of the glossy magazines, there's a coffee table world I could never, ever fit in. I love those, that phrasing of that line. Born fighter to me is, again, it's the ultimate rock pile song and it's here on on, on Nicolo's solo album
fighting on these songs, isn't there? Born yeah. Fighter and then Big Kick Plane Scrap, which is also about like demented drug addled like you know lovers quarrels on a much sleazier level even than born fighter was. <laughs> but yeah there's a little yeah that's why he called it labor of lust i guess it's a lot of carnality a yeah. lot i mean if you think of if you was a song like skin deep uh there's a lot there's a lot about life on the road on this i mean a little bit, skin uh, deep has again. skin deep has that brilliant line uh belly to belly but never eye to yeah. eye oh yeah so yeah. the, the, to, to find that phrase and to find that, well, as he puts later in the song, a moment of treasure, a, a moment to treasure, it's just a matter of time. Like, what does it mean? It's just, it's a moment, just a matter of time. It, that's all it is. Um, Switchboard Susan, which is one of the covers here. Mickey Jupp wrote Switchboard Susan. That is another just spot on performance would from, you know by the way would you know ever that that was a cover unless you looked at the credits no, that sounds like that, such well, a that's, song. that's yeah. the story he, he knows where he knows where to find them man it's amazing that's the story of nick Lowe's career and, and uh, matt might mention this later but he has said numerous times numerous times his goal when he writes a song is to is to write it until it becomes someone else's song until it doesn't even seem like his own song anymore and later on especially in the 90s output it's really hard to figure out which of these classic sounding songs Nick Lowe wrote and which of these classic sounding songs are covers yeah. that someone else right. wrote. It's just part of his gift. But Switchboard Susan has that wonderfully snaking guitar lick, the snare drum shot at the beginning from, from Terry Williams, wonderful groove, uh, that, that line that you would assume Nick Lowe wrote but didn't. When I'm near you, girl, I get an extension, and I don't mean Alexander Graham Bell's invention. <laughs> Perfect, and it is yeah, such... exactly. That's why I was saying that. Right? Like that's, well, that was a McLeodier. It is. When I'm with you, girl, I get an extension, and I don't mean Alexander Graham Bell's invention. Sweatspot Susan, can we be friends? After six at weekends, I'm alone. It is yeah, such yeah. a Nick Lowe song that when Weird Al Yankovic decided to do a pastiche of Nick Lowe and Nick Lowe's sound, what song did he pick? He picked Switchboard Susan to base Airline Amy on. That's how much this sounds like a right. Nick Lowe song. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love cracking up for a number of reasons. I know it's one of Jeff's favorites. I will leave that for him to have something to talk about. But even the, even the slower, <laughs> slower moments here, like You Make Me, that is a quiet acoustic <sighs> song that was written in that manner because he was trying not to wake up his bandmates in the hotel room. And he called his office and sang this song into the recording machine and then ended up playing it in studio. Every little piece of Labor of Lust works. And uh, it's, I, I, I don't know if anything from this era of pub rock gets better than, than this collection of songs.
I mean, it's it's the the Catholic nature of what Lowe is doing here that I love so much. Because you know, you call this pub rock. The pub, the term pub rock, I've never, no one's ever loved it because it makes you think of just like something very basic and simple, and maybe not even particularly intelligent. Uh, there's nothing but intelligence all over this record, as you guys have already said. I'll just talk about, you know, Scott said that you have to be really gifted to take a, a cover and make it so clearly your own that people don't even realize it is with Switchboard Susan. Well, you also have to take a lot of nerve to name your song after a really famous classic, which is Cracking Up. It's been covered by everyone. I have an old pissy bootleg of the Rolling Stones doing it back in 1965. And then com- create this completely different song out of that famous title. It's a fusion of what is it, noir and the Beach Boys? <laughs> that when they're like, I don't think it's funny no more. That, that's Beach Boys, like all of a sudden intruding into this paranoid thing. But I'd say that, yeah, Big Kick, Queen Scrap is maybe my favorite song on this record. I, it, just a demented rhythm track. It's halfway between Bo Diddley and, and a fever dream. It's certainly the druggiest thing that Lowe ever wrote. And it, it feels genuinely dirty, which I would say is an amazing act of impersonation for Lowe. But you know, I think it, around that time when he was touring and Elvis Costello and the boys, <laughs> he was up to, up to some pretty crazy antics himself. Cracking up, I'm getting ready to go. Had enough, I can't take anymore. No pills. This is too real And there ain't no escape It scared the daylights It make a nightmare I'm tense and I'm nervous Everybody all around me Shaking hands and saying howdy I don't think it's funny no more Cracking up I mean, the only other thing I'll say is it's skin deep, aside from the lyrics, which, which Scott already discussed. It's just a wonderful little curate's egg of a song, uh, rhythmically and harmonically. Everything about it screams experiment. This entire thing is a really experimental album, which I guess uh, is why it's either surprising or not surprising at all that the, finally, when they get around to doing a Rockpile album under Rockpile's own name in 1980, that one sounds a lot more like a Nick Lowe album yes, than a does. Dave Edmonds album. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This one, this one is again, you know, now Lowe is singing songs because it's a rock pile album. He's allowed to sing in a way that he wasn't when they were just collaborating under different names. And that means that when he sings his own compositions, he's singing songs that were made for his own voice. And that gives this album a very different character than any of the other stuff he was doing with Edmund. Scott, what do you think? I think the most important thing or the biggest thing is what you identified. This is much brighter, much poppier than perhaps people were expecting from a rock pile album. It's more it's more low, it's it's less Edmonds. And the other thing I think about this album is that it is such a second half record. First part of the album is very good. It's rock pile. They sound great. But when you flip it over to side two, which again no one cares about at this point because that's CDs and streaming, but it's really a side two record. The song that Chris Difford and uh, Glenn Tilbrook wrote for them, Wrong Again, Let's Face It is awesome fantastic uh, fantastic yeah. song that edmund sings the way they interpret the squeeze sound and make it a rock pile song is great sort of grabbing that new wave feel to mix with the rock okay you want to know what's hilarious about that they even imitate the way squeeze sing their vocals with them dual duetting on ah 
Yep. Hill Brooks sing the same line, but just in different octaves. They do this on a rock file song, like a squeeze song. It's just because they they, they mimic the approach. And it, it works out just really well. Nick Lowe's Pet You and Hold You uh, with those dive bomb guitar licks from Bremner throughout is a wonderful track. You have Edmonds doing Chuck Berry, which is a match made in heaven on Oh, What a Thrill. And then you get to Buried on the second side of the album. I, I think one of Nick Lowe's finest compositions at any point in his career. When I Write the Book, just an amazingly mm-hmm. great pop rock song power pop song um uh, 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 about a guy who is uh, who is well writing the book about his life and all the bad things that happened uh, be about a man who was torn in half and his hope that ambition wasted through the years the pain will be written on every page in tears when i write the book about my life when i was young love was fun and i was so happy i looked so good Dress so snappy, two-tone shoes on my feet, big old smile on my face as I move, move, move around over the place. But now I'm down at heel and my complexion is bad because my love of life is sadder than sad. But when I write the book about my love, it'll be a pop publication, tougher than tough. When I get down on the pages, all I you know that there's an, another uh, there's another Dave Edmonds, Elvis Costello, Bruce Springsteen chain uh, in, involved in this song? Because, okay, so when I write the book written by Nick Lowe, right. a couple years later, what does Elvis Costello write? Every day I write the book. Right. A year after that, what does Bruce Springsteen write in Dancing in the Dark? I'm sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. <laughs> I need a l- No, no. And, and listen, by the way, we know this. I, somebody clued me in the, on this just today. Uh, Springsteen gave one of his unreleased songs at the time to Dave Edmonds in 1981 from Small Things, Big Things, One Day Come. That's a, that's a, a river outtake. So we know for a fact that they, he was listening to them. They were listening to him. And... This may be my crack theory, but I'm going to I'm going to hammer it home. <laughs> yeah. Write it all the way to the end. Uh, the I, I, it's not that Dave Edmonds doesn't have great parts on this record. I think one of his best performances is If Sugar Were As Sweet As You, which is an old Joe Tex song who I love. I love Joe Tex. Oh. Um, that second track on the album that Edmonds just sings their crap out of. That is one of the best Edmonds songs uh, uh, on this record. And it is, uh, again, I think, as as Jeff mentioned, I think the real important thing from this is that it just is low eclipsing Edmonds, period. And likely why that partnership falls apart within a year or so of this release. Yeah, I 
I'll say this, and then I'll let Matt get his word. And I, I think you, you said this is a second half album. I think one of the finest songs in Nick Lowe's entire career is on the first half of this album, and that's Heart. And that's a song he would go on to re-record, and he'd do a really good job in slowing it down and re-recording it in his solo career. But it's no past on the original rock pile version. This is just a stomping soul classic. It sounds like the effortless 60s hit that you've been listening to your entire life, but you didn't know was there. It, it, it fulfills everything that Lowe says his goal was when he says, I want to write a song that almost effaces itself. That it sounds like a classic that's, that we're covering. It's such a great song. covered most of the points I would make. I agree that Hart and uh, When I Write the Book are two of his all-time greats. And I really like the rock pile arrangement. I'm not a big fan of his solo arrangement. I, I think it's probably worth saying um, that if, you, if you're interested in rock pile, and I think this album, but the live stuff is really great and really where they built their reputation. Um, they were just a killer live band. And, and if you think about Dave Edmonds coming out and rocking with something like Crawling from the Wreckage and then handing off to Nick Lowe and back and forth, you can see why. And then handing off to Billy uh, Dave, Bremner, too, who also yeah. took leads. I mean, he was yeah. a great, pretty great singer. I've yeah. heard these concerts. He's, 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 I think he sings hard on this on Seconds of Pleasure. And, I, and they, 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 they blew off. They, they frequently uh, would, would blow the main act off the stage, which is part of why there was such excitement about them. In that one sense, I think this is a great album. It's it's slightly anticlimactic next to the expectations that have been built up for it and next to what they were right. doing live. And it's and, and it's very interesting on this kind of low Edmonds point because when you when you see them in concert, you can kind of see Dave Edmonds putting himself out there a little more as the band leader and doing more of the talking and taking the singing. And when they get in the studio for this album, the talent of Nick Lowe's songwriting and the slightly poppier iconoclastic approach kind of starts to overwhelm uh, Dave Edmonds quite a bit here. Uh, one other thing that you guys uh, didn't mention, which I'll just throw in, when the two of them sing together, and they uh, in, the, in, the, in the remix they included this, they have a uh, an EP they did of the two of them singing Everly Brothers Everly classics. Brothers songs, yeah. it's so lovely. Th their, their voices are beautiful. Everly Brothers is a really important band to Nick Lowe. They come up at different points in their career, but their voices together are great. You can see why they, on this album, why they musically met so well, but also why they weren't going to last. 
I took my little Jenny to a party last night At one o'clock it ended in a heck of a fight When someone hit my Jenny she went out like a light Poor Jenny And then some joker went and called the cops on the phone So everybody scattered out to places unknown I couldn't carry Jenny so I left her alone Poor Jenny Well Jenny had a picture in the paper this morning She made it with a bang According to the story in the papers this morning Jenny is the leader of a teenage gang Jenny has a brother and he's hot on my trail Her daddy wants to ride me out of town on a rail I hope I'll be around when Jenny gets out of jail Poor Jenny And quick, quick shout out to a friend of the program who sent me that record, that literal record after I bought uh, Seconds of Pleasure, and it was not included a few years ago. So, And of course, oddly enough, this is the point where Nick Lowe sort of begins a, a period, I, I think most people would argue, a period of artistic, you know, a, a, a doldrums, right? And, you know, you can say it's because he'd just gotten married recently and he was dealing with that. Yeah. You can say it was because he was so busy, he was stretched thin producing. You can also say maybe it's because his relationship with Dave Edmonds was at a fracture point. You know, when you lose Edmonds, you're losing a pretty important part of your recording band, uh, if nothing else. And so he'd have to find a new direction. So he waits until 1982 uh, to put out his next actual solo album under his own name, and that's Nick the Knife. This one is just not really treated very well by most uh, reviewers. I actually think it's very underrated. Um, I also think that that remake of Heart, which Matt said he didn't like, I, they put a little reggae beat on it. Okay, I yeah. think that's probably what what ticks him off. But you can't ruin that song. It's such a beautiful song, and you know, I, if you know, I would prefer that the rock pile version be included on compilations. But I'm okay with this one. But I, I, I love the other tracks on this. Um, you know, there, there's a song on here called Too Many Teardrops, which I just think is hilarious because it alarmingly predicts every breath you take. Uh, it has the same riff going, you know, in the verses, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's really funny, actually, uncanny, in fact. It kind of makes you wonder whether Sting was singing or was listening and paying attention. But I really like this album, even though it's clearly a decline from Labor of Lust or even from Seconds of Pleasure. Too many teardrops Never cried for The one that stands out for me, and I'll just put in a word for it, that I think is a great song and is, you know, uh, Nick Lowe doing Motown is Raining Raining, which I think is sounds terrific. It has a great guitar from Billy Bremner. Um, Billy Bremner and Terry Williams were the band on this album. It's just right. that Dave Edmonds wasn't around. Right. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff I like. I like uh, I like My Heart Hurts, I think is good. Co-written with Carlene Carter his wife at the time let me kiss you is a very catchy pop song the lyric is a bit silly almost it's a little like mccartney-esque but but i like the 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 poppiness i think the challenge that you begin to see here um is 
the, the, he's got all the his bag of tricks, and he's 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 just such a talented songwriter and magpie or whatever we want to call him. The quality of the lyrics and the songs themselves is just a little bit slighter, which is a, a, becomes a bit of an issue for him throughout the '80s. And I think you, that's part of the drop off you see from Labor of Lust. But it's a really enjoyable album for all that. There's pressure to replicate the top 40 success that he had with Cruel to be Kind. And Nick Lowe is, by definition, a one-hit wonder, which is a horrible thing to uh, to slap him with. But it's true. He had one top 40 hit, Cruel to be Kind. And that was it. And for a lot of the 80s, he talks about the stress and the uh, uncertainty and the problems he had with being on the label merry-go-round. Uh, write a write a write an album, record it, try to produce a hit, go tour, do the whole thing again next year, and so I think it wears on him. And he is at this point with Nick the Knife in a relatively unhappy uh, uh, home with Carlene Carter. That was not a marriage that was smooth by any definition of the word. So that's happening here too. And Nick the Knife, I, I, I think Matt alluded to this, is just songs of slightly lesser quality. And whether that's because uh, he, he wrote a lot in a very short period of time in that late 70s era for both Dave Edmonds and himself, and Rockpile and producing others and handing some songs off to others, or other things that are that are happening around the time in which he's trying to, to key in on songs that might uh, become chart hits. I can't say for sure, but I think the songs are just slightly lesser quality. The one that I'll highlight is uh, Stick It Where the Sun Don't Shine, which is a pretty good track. It also takes the CCR riff from Green River, turns that inside out, and gives you a new song. And that that's uh, an influence from long ago. Those early Brinsley Schwartz albums were were in some ways influenced by by CCR song. So I, I, I think Nick the Knife is, is a fine album. It's nowhere near where, where it was, but it's better than, than The Abominable Showman, which would be next. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Scott. And I and, and I will say this though, I think there are some tracks on here that really do strike me. Zulu Kiss has always been one of my favorite Nick Lowe, Dark Horse favorite Nick Lowe songs of all time. Because again, it's another one of these rhythm centered things. It's all about this really insane drum track underneath it, and 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 a really kind of a you know a furious melodic idea. <laughs> Saying, I want to kiss your eye. I want to kiss your neck. 
you know, the abominable showman. I liked it a little more than I expected to. This one's uh, the reputation it has came out in 1983. It was out of print until like 2017, which shows most of these albums were out of print for a long, 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 long time. Not an enormous amount of demand for the abominable showman, but I will say that despite some of there's some really, really awkward things on this. Like for the first time, I there's a song here that sucks. Tanqueray, absolutely. Awful, like 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 genuinely a bad song. There's so few Nick Lowe songs, even when he's boring and mediocre, that are bad. That one's bad. But I've always liked "Time Wounds All Heals," which is one that he wrote with his wife, uh, you know, Carly Carlene Carter. Carter. Yep, that's a good song. That's a really good song. And I also like "Raging Eyes" as well. I think that's a fine little track. But you're right, we're entering what I consider to be like his trough, and he's going to pull out of this in a major way. But it's going to take a decade for him to figure it out. Well, I know a little girl. Lives over there, she looks so square, but for a pair of raging eyes. Oh, she got raging eyes. Well, she ain't such a beauty, hardy Juliet, but she can roll and roll me on do his duty with his raging eyes. Raging eyes. She's got raging eyes. Who wants to tell her? one on here I would throw in too which is an old Brinsley Schwartz tune Mess Around With Love mm-hmm. um, that he revived mm-hmm. but he is he he you can feel the inspiration challenge coming in and it's maybe this is uh, the moment to say um, one of his issues is he's drinking a lot he was drinking a lot at this time his marriage was turning unhappy and he is kind of bottoming out a little bit personally I don't know that if he ever had uh one of those gigantic blow-up crises, but he clearly uh, ran into a personal wall around this time that that starts to catch up to him in the music quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, and I think it affects all these next few albums. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Nick Lowe and his cowboy outfit, the one that comes next in 1984. There's a couple of decent songs. I like LAFS, which I thought I would hate. You know, this this is one of those albums that I really only came back to when we prepared for the show. But I, I like the ones that were on Basher, basically. I like the hits. And beyond that, I'm really not a fan of this or of The Rose of England, which a lot of people treat as something of a comeback, but has never much impressed me. I know you guys feel a bit differently. Yeah, the Cowboy Outfit album is the one that spans his really bad drunkenness and then his trying to get sober. Although, as Matt might 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 tell us later, Nick Lowe is not a guy that's always that's ever completely sober. I think he, there's even a quote in his book that uh, he said, it, "It never occurred to me that I'd simply stop drinking. I just needed to <laughs> to figure out how to drink." I think it's somewhat close to that quote. So, the Cowboy Outfit album, I think, is his least convincing album. His vocals are off. It's kind of uncommitted, and actually, that's one of the reasons I don't like I don't like LAFS. I think it's one of those vocal performances that yeah. don't meet the the, the, the usual Nick Lowe standards. Some of the songs on here are songs that uh, that sound like other things. There's one called You'll Never Get Me Up in One of Those. 
which uh, yeah, is a cover, but it sounds like a fabulous Thunderbirds track, which makes a little sense because he and Kim Wilson were friendly. They wrote a few songs together, but it doesn't necessarily sound like a Nick Lowe track should sound. spending time in Austin. I think he might have done some production work for the Thunderbirds at that time. Mm-hmm. I think in one of his many different things he was trying to do to inspire himself, he'd been in Austin. Um, so I think that's part of that. And that he, he starts to get a little rockabilly in some of these songs here throughout. I, I cut you off, Scott, but I just want to say on LAFS, then I'll go back. What I find funny about it is it sounds like it's from a totally different album. It was produced by Elvis Costello. Right. Uh, it's got his kind of poppy, horn-oriented Elvis sound of the time, and it kind of comes out of left field on this one. M-A-F-S means love first sight And something that like lightning strikes once never ever L-A-F-S means love first sight I've heard and read and talked about it up until last night means love at first sight And something that like lightning Strikes once But never The next album, which Jeff mentioned, he doesn't like as well as as Matt and I do, is The Rose of England. And this is one where uh, he, he sounds buoyant. Uh, he had moved out uh, of, of the house with Carlene Carter, and usually breakups make people sad. This breakup made Nick kind of happy uh, and, and perked up and uh, a little more aware of what was happening, I think, on, on the record. I think perhaps his greatest song of the 80s, the decade of the 80s is on here. I, I love She Don't Love Nobody, which is a John Hyatt track that Nick makes his own on this one it even has the exact same drum intro as cruel to be kind as if they were hey you like that one here's a song that starts the exact same way but he pulls <laughs> he really pulls that off very well i know jeff hates uh this remake of i knew the bride um and i know exactly why because it's because it, huey did it i mean this is a track that this is another another album in which the record company said we don't like it we don't hear a single and so nick told huey lewis this and huey said don't worry we'll, we'll do something how about uh about I knew the bride when she used to rock and roll, and Nick said, yeah, "That's a trunk track. That's that's like 15 years old." And Huey said, "None of your fans know that. <laughs> no one knows that song from way back when." So, Nobody's a Dave Edmonds uh, super fan over uh, here, buddy. Like, don't worry. So the uh, the news played on it, the band played on it, and Huey produced it. And it sounds this is by the way this is Huey returning and paying back as best he could any favor Nick Lowe ever did for him because if you strip yeah. the vo- if you strip the vocal off. It is a Huey Lewis and the News track. You, you would not be able to tell the difference. And then, of course, you have this Brit singing lead on it. But Huey did everything in his power 
to give Nick Lowe a hit single on the Rose of England with this remake of I Knew the Bride. And it semi-worked. It, I, yeah. I think it's a second or third best charting single in the U.S., but it was not a top 40 hit. It was not a top 10 hit. It didn't move the, the album in, in record numbers by any stretch. But I think he sounds more alive. I think he sounds happier. I think he sounds more more Nick Lowe on the Rose of England, which is why it's the high point of the decade. One thing I like about this album is the cover of Indoor Fireworks. Again, you know, about divorces, both of them had obviously undergone one at the time. Uh, Indoor Fireworks is the song that Costello wrote about his divorce from his first wife. He gives it to Nick Lowe. They have dueling versions. Elvis is on King of America, recorded around this time, actually, probably almost around the exact same sessions. Um, and I genuinely actually prefer Nick's version. I know Scott doesn't. Scott Scott doesn't like the drums, but I love the way Nick sings this with a lighter tone, an airier tone than the very kind of heavy and exhausted, resigned way that Elvis Costello sings it. Because when he when Elvis Costello talks about how when we when we get indoors, a different kind of fireworks would happen, it doesn't really sound like he means it. Nick Lowe kind of means it. He's like, well, I still can see why I was intra- I was attracted to you in the first place. This is what that song is really about for me. But other than that, I don't love the record, and I don't like the title track, which everyone else seems to think is one of his better songs, but it's never done too much for me. We play these parlor games. We play at make-believe. When we get to the part where I say that I'm gonna Everybody loves a happy ending, but we don't even try. We go straight past pretending to the part where everybody loves to cry. Indoor fireworks can still burn your fingers. Indoor fireworks, we swore we're safe as houses. It's funny, I, I, I actually think I probably split the difference between you uh, both a little bit on this. Um, in one way, you can see the weakness of what he's dealing with, because I think half the songs on this one are covers. He doesn't bring that much original material. Some of what he brings, I mean, I think some of what he brings is pretty good. I think Lucky Dog is a is a catchy song and a nice rocker. What I think is interesting about the Rose of England uh, to me is he's he's it's sung in earnest. It's a serious song. Um, he he's going to try at some point to to take a more mature angle in his songwriting and shed some of the sort of youthful smart aleck 
kicks, which are which were great fun. But but he's this is around the time he starts to try to consciously outgrow that a little bit, and I think it works and is very interesting on that level. Um, but I, he's he's still caught up in the struggle a little bit on this one. I, I, there's a point I wanted to make that I, I didn't get to, but since we're about to leave Huey Lewis. Uh, behind, and I have to say, having lived through that period myself uh, in college and as an adult at that time, it will always bother me that Nick Lowe was at a point in his life where he needed Huey Lewis's help to bail him out. Thank you. Um, but uh, I don't want to wade into the ongoing <laughs> debate that you guys have, except I, I did want to say, uh, I think we could all agree that Born Fighter is the coolest Huey Lewis has ever been. I think everybody can agree. <laughs> On that point, I don't I know. Didn't he play a little bit with the Grateful Dead at some point, uh, Jeff? Am I misremembering? Oh that? no, I hope not. Not is that it, I can remember. I know there's, I mean, a, there's a famous picture of Huey and, and Jerry Garcia backstage somewhere. That could be one. Well, I'm they are of. they are both San Francisco legends. That's after right. All yeah. right. And, and by the right. way, I do want to mention all this Huey Lewis talk today, Jeff, does not relieve you of your responsibility <laughs> to do the Huey Lewis episode. I want to make that clear. No, I think it does, Scott. But you know, the funny thing is that for all the mention of Huey Lewis, what we actually didn't mention, and something that I guess the clips might be bringing to the fore here, that's gone unnoticed is that Nicklo's sound has fundamentally changed, and it's mm. going to continue changing further throughout this time. Now, we always thought of him, you know, earlier maybe with Brinsley Schwartz, it was the pub rock, but in the high, high new wave era, it was this very clever, crafted pop music. Now he's heading towards country, roots, rock, Americana, folk, that kind of stuff, lots of blues. And the funny thing about it is that in some ways it's kind of a recapitulation of where he started out, you know, with the, the early country-ish inflections of Brinsley Schwartz. He'd always had an affection for this kind of material. But now he's coming back to it with these next several albums. And I think the next two I do not do anything from either the nadir of his career, in my opinion. I don't have very much to say about either, uh, was it Pinker and Prouder Than Previous or 1990s Party of One, which I guess I'll say this about, about, about Party of One. Is it better than the TV show on Fox, Party of Five? <laughs> I'll say a couple things if I can. I want to mention one other album that I think is important in this period of comeback because this is a period when he's he's trying to figure out his path forward. Uh, he was on uh, John Hyatt's Bring the Family. Uh, and he almost didn't make it. That's to, right. To There's the a famous story about how he had a date with Margot Kidder. Yeah. And uh, then he got the call. He said the call he'd been waiting for, come to Chicago. I think it was Chicago, right? Or maybe it was L.A. And, be, and, and play on Bring the Family. And, you know, you can see it. He's got a date with Margot Kidder, and he says no. Uh, his agent calls him and essentially says, what the hell are you thinking? What are you doing? And uh, so he changed it. Um, the nice kicker of the story is he says he realized that telling Margot Kidder he couldn't go on the date with her because he had to go make this album made him seem cooler and more appealing to her. Uh <laughs> And, and and they had a they had a, a brief relationship, but I think but he met Ry Cooter during during that. And uh, if you like John High, I, Scott, I think you're a fan. Oh uh, yeah, Bring the Family is one of his it's best albums. Absolutely and fantastic. It's yep. one of the key things in in bringing him back. And and by the way, he covered uh, John Hyde on the Rose of England too. I'll, I don't want to jump ahead, but I, I agree with you, Jeff. On I just think Pinker and Prouder than previous. I think. There's a there's a um, there's a decent competency level throughout. Again, to me, there's nothing awful here. There's some good covers. Wishing Well is a pretty good song, but it's a fairly bland album. Um, uh, it's, it's just flat. It's, it's monochromatic. It's, it's just very it, flat it, the whole way yeah. through. 
um, I, but I, I think Party of One, where Dave Edmonds comes back to it, Edmonds actually produced uh, one of the songs on Binker and Proud to Produce, but he came back to produce Party of One somewhat contentiously, I think. Um, because he, uh, because of where their relationship was at at this point, I think Party of One is uh, at least a half step forward and a half step toward what's coming. Um, it's got some, it's got a, a one stretch of much better songs. I think What Shaking on the Hill is a great song with great swing. It's poignant. It's one of his first kind of Nick Lowe uh, sort of middle aged weepers. It sounds fantastic. That I someday may be joining in is just wishful thinking. Cause admission's only guaranteed to favored few. There's a waiting list and plenty more in a long line leading to the door. So I'll never know for sure what's shaking on the hill. I'm too blue to be played with. Shing Shang, which actually works better live, but is a really a fun song and, and swings and comes right after it. We should probably talk about All Men Are Liars, which became one of the most notorious uh, Nick Lowe lyrics ever, but which is, a, a, I think, a hilarious song that, that, that really swings very well. And, and Into Rocky Road, um, I think that's a very good stretch in there. Um, uh, Ry Cooter plays on an album. Jim Keltner plays on an album. I think that's the one that starts to pull them out. Should I go back to All Men Are Liars for one second? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean... That's a song, famously, <laughs> uh, where he um, he was inspired by, uh, I think he heard someone say the phrase on Oprah Winfrey, All Men Are Liars, and it, he, uh, it has one of his funniest and uh, really kind of meanness. He's starting to get a little bit less uh, mean at this point in his career, uh, but lyrics um, uh, where he takes a pot shot at Rick Astley, uh, rhymes it with ghastly. Um, the, the, the theme of the song being all men are liars. And he says, oh, do you remember Rick Astley? He wrote a song that was ghastly. He sings it in a way where you can tell he knows he's making a bad pun and having quite, quite a bit of fun with it. It also has a very intricate and fun chorus that I think is hilarious. He now says it's overwritten. Uh, all men are liars. Their words aren't worth no more than worn out tires. Hey, girls, bring rusty pliers to pull this tooth. All men are liars. And that's the truth. I, I think it's hilarious. It swings. It moves. It's got some energy. And I really like that middle section of Party uh, of One quite a bit. Well, do you remember Rick Astley? It was ghastly He said I'm never gonna give you up Or let you down Well I'm here to tell you that dick's a clown Though 
You also have to give him credit for sort of psychologically and spiritually predicting the Rick role. You know, <laughs> I mean, he somehow knew that Never Gonna Give You Up was going to become an earworm that invaded our consciousness like you know, decades later. Right. As a as a as a longtime fan of your podcast, I really am looking forward to your guys' Rick Astley episode one day. Oh, I don't know who the uh, maybe a thirty-second-long show, right? All right. Well, I guess that 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 takes us up. I would say, unless you have anything final to add, Scott, do you? Oh no, not to not to that album. No, no. Well, this, oh, you know, this... I do. I do have something that will help transition. Can I? Can I do? Yeah, this? yeah. Go for it. So yeah. this is yeah. actually this is a really important moment in in the career of Nick Lowe that only barely involves him, but it will set the stage for every literally everything that is to come because. As we mentioned, the 80s were spent very much on the the album uh, merry-go-round. Uh, record, tour, try to find a hit. Record, tour, try to find a hit. Don't have a hit, the label stops caring about you, right? So this is all happening through the 80s while he's trying to figure out his career. So what happens near the end of the 90s, or I guess the very beginning of the 90s, I should say, uh, is there's this movie you might have heard of called The Bodyguard. Kevin Costner, Whitney Houston... You might have heard of it because you also might have owned the soundtrack like 30 million people did or something along those lines around that time with huge songs from Whitney Houston. I will always love you being chief among them. But if you go to the back half of the record, there's a little song called What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. And um, the, the placement of that song on that soundtrack changed Nick Lowe's life because it gave him a steady stream of income the story goes that his very first royalty check from the bodyguard sales was seven figures and those checks Remember, this is a guy who had never had a hit right never yeah. had a hit one top 40 hit and that's all all of a sudden hey, hey free money for something i did like literally 20 years ago. right no but 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 we but i we, uh, which we should know he it's sung by uh well, it's not him it's not him. It's something about Curtis Curtis Stiggers. Stiggers. Yes. Yeah, Stiggers. Yep. Who and it's not it's not a very good version. Although, no, it's not. doesn't matter. <laughs> although Nick Lowe, uh, to his to his everlasting credit, Nick Lowe has been very gracious to uh, that singer, and they've become friends. Uh, but you think, man, genius to think to put this song on here, and why not just use the Nick Lowe original? <laughs> <laughs> So that gives him a steady flow of income. That gives him checks coming in all the time from royalties, from writing what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. And that allows him, as I hope uh, this is a good transition over to, to Jeff, this allows him to do whatever the hell he wants to do for the rest of his musical career. And as it turns out, whatever the hell he wants to do for the rest of his musical career is what I think we all like to hear. Because he has settled in and he begins to settle in to a, I would say, a gloriously comfortable and self-assured old age. And yeah, it's an old age. It's, it's beyond middle age with The Impossible Bird, 1994's Impossible Bird. He took four years off, by the way. I think the Bodyguard soundtrack was 91. Mm -hmm. He took his time and it shows because this is an album that is full. It has a couple of covers, but the covers are just so perfectly chosen. You don't even realize until you go to the credits and you're like, oh, true love travels on, on a gravel road. I, I thought that was a Nick Lowe song. It's not. Uh, but it has some of the best music he has written in a decade. Uh, he, and, and the thing is, it's not a one-off because he's going to continue repeating this trick from here on out. 
But when I when I listen to something, it starts with Soulful Wind, which is is a bluesy thing with him singing in a very gravelly voice, which I'll get to in a second. Um, but what I love the most about Soulful Wind is that wonderful guitar run near the end of it that imitates the breeze blowing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like I mean, I don't know what you do with your fingers. I'm imitating as I'm speaking here. My <laughs> fingers like hippity like, tapping up and down a fretboard. It, it it sounds like like geometric logic on the fretboard, but it's a wonderful song. And it signals right from the start that Lowe is back, not only as a songwriter, but as a singer, as a lyricist, and also having found this very lived-in, sort of earthy, roots rock sound that, that doesn't feel casual or sloppy in any way. It doesn't feel like, you know, like hacked off. But there's nothing overproduced about this music. I don't think there's going to be anything overproduced about a Nick Lowe song for the next, for the rest of no. his career, which is amazing because he avoided every single production problem of this era. So This to me is uh, every bit as perfect in its way as Labor of Lust, and it's actually remarkable in some ways to think that the same artist did both. Every song is well chosen, um, but but it is more mature. It is deeper. It's very well sequenced. There, there's a couple of beautiful moments. I think, like for instance, when you come out of uh, the Beast in Me. And you get that very kind of soothing intro to uh, True Love Gravel uh, Travels on the Gravel Road. Um, it's 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 really the intersection now of country and soul, which both of which kind of become closer to his music and uh, go, take it back to his earliest roots. Um, and the other thing that you, you touched on, Jeff, but which I think is amazing here, the, the musicianship is fantastic throughout. Um, there's still Niccolo's humor, touches of humor. Where's my everything is a mm-hmm. very witty song, but it's not a flippant song. It's not a snotty song. It's it's got depth underneath the wit. But the thing that you touched on, which I just want to say one word about, is the singing. And the 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 production puts the voice out front, and the the, the album is paced so that you get kind of fast numbers, and then you have voice driven numbers. So, uh, you know, a song like Shelly, My Love or Lover Don't Go, you hear it best to me in The Beast in Me. Probably some people would say the best song he's ever written. It's definitely in the the top uh, few best songs he's ever written. Famously uh, written for his ex-father-in-law at this point, Johnny Cash. Over over the course of a decade. He couldn't finish it. Yeah, trying to channel through his voice. But I think tellingly in a way... And Nick Lowe is very funny about this. You know, he makes a big deal about how he, he doesn't write personally and he's a professional songwriter, but it took him over 10 years to finish the song. Um, and clearly it does reflect some of his own experiences in it. And, and I like, I actually prefer his performance to Johnny Cash's. And part of it is how immaculately careful he is in the singing of it. He sings it like, 
a man who's afraid to awaken that beast, like a Sunday morning song. Like he's just come off a bender and the house is a mess and he's scared of himself. And it makes it both poignant and also really eerie. And it really reflects, um, it, it, at this point, from, from this point on, he's really thoughtful about how he sings and phrases everything. Of the beast in me That everybody knows They've seen him out dressed in my clothes Patently unclear If it's New York or New Year According to the musicians he's working with, and again, it becomes a pretty uh, steady group for the next two decades. He shows up prepared. He's worked his songs over. He, he, he just, you know, he's such a talented guy, and he was so quick and sharp and clever and poppy. This is the moment where he slows down and really takes extra care of what he's doing. And I think it really comes through. And I think you feel it in the album, but it really comes through in The Beast of Me very well. Yeah. Before I turn it over to Scott, the thing about the voices is something I was I was struck by because this is the moment where you know the, when when an artist takes a long layoff and they come back and their voice immediately starts sounding different, you have that thought like, uh oh, is age finally caught up to them? Have they shot their voice? Especially in, in 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 people with graying hair, you notice their voices get ragged. So when this album opens with Soulful Wind and Beast in Me, I thought, well, we're in, we're entering the Bob Dylan phase of Nick Lowe's career, <laughs> aren't we? But we're not. These are voices that he adopts for the songs that he's singing. He's just as capable as he ever was of singing a very high, beautifully plaintive melody like Shelly, My Love. Shelly, My Love is, I mean, if, if it were not for the fact that this album will make my list, the song would absolutely make my list. It's one of, I prefer it to The Beast in Me. It's such a beautiful melody, and it is him singing at a, at a, a, a song that almost feels winsomely pure and innocent in its own way just because of its melody. Uh, that, that song's, uh, that, a song you should have written at a much younger age, but it's so beautiful here. Shelly, my love I only long to be where you are Shelly, my love Now and forevermore Shelly, my love When I see you, I catch fire and soon I'm all aflame I feel it start whenever you call my name All around I feel a passion That fills my very soul I put it down to that I love you so Shelly, my love I got to spend a few minutes here because there's a string of albums here and they're all really good. Dig My Mood, Convincer, At My Age, even the old Magic. 
And they're all somewhat similar. And I think if you talk to Nick Lowe fans, that everyone probably has a different favorite and with good reason. But for me, this first one, The Impossible Bird, is the high point of this second act of his career. It is just shockingly good from start to finish. This music is incredible. There are three names that you need to know about this era, or at least two names about this era, one about this particular album. The two names for this era, Neil Brockbank comes in and he produces and engineers these albums. He's a key collaborator with with Nick Lowe. And the other one is Bobby Irwin, who has played drums previously and, and then continues moving forward. Irwin was perhaps Lowe's closest uh, musical muse through these albums. He helped him construct this very simpler or this very simple, less contrived way of writing songs. He wasn't doing, as Nick Lowe called them, stunt rhymes anymore in the songs. Uh, much more direct, much simpler, with the vocals in the center and having the band fill in around him. And what they accomplish on The Impossible Bird is amazing. I, I compare this to, if you like those later year, uh, late career albums produced by Daniel Lanois from Bob Dylan and Will yeah. Nelson, if you like Time Out of Mind, Time Out of Mind is the one that, that jumped directly to my head as I reviewed The Impossible Bird. It is that same feeling of an artist who is in complete control of his power and and being a little more vulnerable and a little more direct and 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 letting the vocal and the song really be the most important thing in the mix we talked about how earlier so much of nick knows work was was rhythm centered what are the bass and drums doing and that's totally beside the point at this at this point in the career it is what is Nick Lowe doing? What is that voice doing? Where is he going to take us? There are three songs on this record, guys, that most songwriters would chop off their left hand to have written. <laughs> That's The Beast in Me, which which Matt covered, an amazing song. Shelly My Love, which Jeff covered, an incredible song. And that third name I was talking about was a woman named Tracy McLeod, who yeah. Nick Lowe had dated for an extended period of time. This song actually was originally Tracy My Love, and right. it did not change because they broke up. It changed because he thought Shelley was better, you know, lyrically. But they did break up. And oh. um, <laughs> so I guess he's glad that he changed. Yeah, it works out for the best. Um, and then the third uh, song, I think, is just out of this world is Withered on the Vine. This is oh. the one that really occurs to me how close it is to what Dylan and Willie Nelson are doing at, the, at that, that late stage of their career. Both those guys are much older by the time they got there. But how life has has life has been screwed up the hardest pill to swallow is still not the reason for you leaving but the way i let it happen uh the self-actualization the self-realization of things that are happening in life and it is so direct and so powerful where did it run to where did it go how could i let it slip through my fingers oh. For it was a real love and rare and fine And I let it wither on the vine But 
But the hardest pill to swallow is dear. It puts me in mind of Richard Thompson's Withered and Died. Mm-hmm. Which is from, uh, I want to see oh. the bright lights tonight back in 73. Uh, but as much as I love that song, uh, this is a much more humane and lived-in version of it. Believe it or not, even talking about Withered on the Vine, because that's <laughs> pure negativity. But this feels much more like a, like at least a human experience. Yeah. And it is, I agree, one of his great songs. Sorry. Anything else? Uh, and then the co-rep with Paul Carrick is magnificent, yes! too. Yes! Yeah, yeah, you stole, yeah, you stole yeah. my note. That was my last note. Okay, talk about I, I Live on a Battlefield. I love this song. I Live on a Battlefield has a very Motown flavor to it. It's a co-rep with Paul yeah. Carrick. It comes just after. Withered on the Vine, I believe, in the track order. And it's a, uh, I think Matt had talked up, about this. I'm sorry? It's a pick-me-up yes. after that, well, really. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Matt had talked about the sequencing on this record, and it's perfect. And the way that that comes in and sort of sweeps you up after Withered on the Vine, it's a perfect placement for that track on this album. Uh, the, the, everyone who recorded this said, there's no, there's no guitar stuff. There's no keyboard stuff. There's, you know, none of those fancy fills or stuff you learned in, in guitar lesson class. Just playing to the song, just playing to the vocal. I am just so impressed, so knocked out by what those guys, and specifically Nick Lowe, was able to accomplish on The Impossible Bird. My new home is a shell devastation of a love been torn apart I live on a battlefield I, I live on a battlefield I live on a battlefield Everything that can has gone wrong I live on a battlefield It's gonna take spine to carry on I like a drowning man, I'm coming up for air. I live on a battlefield. I'm looking for another survivor, but I can't see one anywhere. My new home. There's no smart aleck left. There's a rueful humor. But from now on, he the target of his humor most of the time is himself. Right. Himself. Yeah. 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 He's, he's, and, sadder, he's sadder but wiser. And, and yeah. like, he, you know, he looks the part too because like he still has that, that really, you know, really nice smile and the big blue eyes. But his hair is just a shock of white. It's <laughs> yeah. all white. I well, mean, like, like platinum white. Almost. It's crazy. It, you know, a couple other things just to add, and I, and I know this is the one we, we wanted to talk about a lot, so um, if, I hope, thanks for indulging me, but you know, he, he talks about how he'd made a decision. He was going to write grown-up songs. And I think that really does inform him from, from here on out. He, he says in a lot of reviews, you know, my songs aren't personal, but by now I've had my heart broken. I know what it's like to love somebody who doesn't love me. And, and you feel him consciously trying to write in a broader way. That uh, What's so interesting about it, and that that's still Nick Lowe, is... He's like a bridge to what he loved when he was young, a bridge back to some of the sort of older country and pop. But he still has a rock and, and modern sensibility feeding into it. And so it, it it's something new and different. And this at a time, I, I don't think it's exaggerating to say, you know, it was not entirely clear at this point in time how well rock and rock musicians would age. 
you know, Bob Dylan and uh, Bob Dylan was seen as a very old man when time. 1994. Bob Dylan was nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 1994. Bob Dylan was no. And but 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 remember, he had a big health scare where people thought he might die. Right. Around yeah. the time of of Time Out of Mind, he was about 56. He's 81 today, and he's still producing great music. Um, and and so this, I you know, I think Nick Lowe was also an important person in, in this period of thinking how this popular music can age with you. And, and continue to speak to your experiences. And he was consciously trying to do that. And, and in that sense, this album is a real bridge to a lot of different traditions that he inherited. You know, talking about aging beautifully. So what brings us next is, is to an album I got basically when it first came out in 1998. And I listened to it maybe once or twice, and then I threw it in the back of a closet. And thank God, Matt, that you agreed to do this episode because it gave me the reason to dig out – Dig my mood. He waited another four years. I love this idea of taking your time. He waited four years. He came back with an album in 1998 that sustains this comeback beautifully. And it's different, by the way. Again, I, I want to emphasize what really needs to, you know, to, you've got to really point out about these records is that how even though they have that laid back and sort of chill older person reputation, Lowe sings on so many different voices. You know, as I said, every time one of these things begins as a, did he finally wreck his voice? Well, because, you know, like, you know, with, with uh, what was it? What, 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 what was it? Faithless lover that opens this album. You yeah. Know, it's like, it's like a dirty blues song about like, you know, you know, an a- angry faithless lover. And then all of a sudden next, Ooh, it's like happy pop with lonesome reverie. There are so many moods on this one. It was a very close call for me to decide actually whether this one might slightly pip the impossible bird because it has everything that has and yet it is it doesn't repeat itself. It does not repeat the same trick. It takes a much more bluesy and R and B turn, I think, in it. Maybe it's more of a, a seductive an old man's idea of a seduction album, but I love this one as much as the other one. Faithless lover under your spell I fell. Now I discover Faithless love Faith no more Faithless love I think it's I think it's uh, as you say great in its own way. For me, the best song on the album is a cover. I think "Failed Christian." Yes, yeah, is yeah. absolutely fantastic. from the guy who played on Paul McCartney's Ram. <laughs> yeah. I, I looked it up, Henry McCulloch. Yeah. The only thing I know him from is he played on Ram, and like I guess he did some other stuff that I never heard. Um, yeah, and 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 actually, it, it's interesting. There's a little more spirituality in different ways on this because a couple songs after that is. Is high on a hilltop, which hilltop. I think is is is, a, is another uh, high point. It's a little jazzier in a couple places. He, yeah. he he starts to get into some some piano jazz, so it doesn't quite uh, have sort of the guitar orientation of the Impossible Bird. But one thing I notice, and this seems to be something he likes, um, uh, is he really likes 
that old Johnny Cash uh, rhythm section. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That Tennessee that 2 feel, yeah. In Man That I Become, it sounds like uh, Luther Perkins has come back to play that. And so the rhythm does come in when he needs it. But it's, it's definitely a quieter record. The friends he had are so-called now. They all slipped away somehow. He's had the blues much more than some. If you know him, that's the kind of man that I've become. He won't go to church, cause his faith's all gone. The sweet singing of the choir will only drive him home. As for comfort, he hasn't got a crumb. If you know him, that's the kind of man that I've become. Uh, a couple of the songs, I don't know if they rise. I, I don't think every song is quite to the level of The Impossible Bird. I, I think uh, none of them are bad, but like freezing is okay for me. Mm-hmm. But the high points are just as high. Scott? Good good record. There's one song in particular that just captures a... Um, a, a moment it's uh i i must be getting over you and it's it's the I, I i don't know about you guys but my my long-term relationships before i met my wonderful wife i i literally i literally can remember the exact moment when it was like okay this is this is it i'm over yeah. and 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 that is what nick Lowe captures perfectly those little mm-hmm. sometimes the everyday things or sometimes the big thing that sort of whacks you upside the head and pushes you, know you that's toward it. the yeah. next thing uh and it's really captured perfectly in that set of lyrics and set to a, a great uh, a great melody as well so that, that's one of my favorites on dig my mood i must be getting over you because today i saw a blue bird at my window i must be getting over you because today i saw the sun breaking through I woke up today something in the air then I realized it was because you were not there then I got down on my knees and gave thanks cause I knew I must be getting over you I was going to say that he keeps moving from strength to strength because this one I was aware of. I had forgotten about Dig My Move, but The Convincer, which is only, I think, two years afterwards, 2000, 2001. Uh, about three, yeah. Uh, it, came, it came out, by the way, it came out the same day as Love and Theft, which was 9-11, if yes, you Yes, correct, correct. Really? They all came out on 9-11? Yep. Okay, well, that's some, that's some ill timing. But, but so, I guess it, sh- it just shows you that these, these old men – who did not know that they were going to have an unfortunate release date are still keeping it together because I think actually, <laughs> boy, you know what? If you're going to say the impossible bird is like time out of mind, I think the convincer makes a great analogy to love and theft. Theft, actually, yeah. I love this record. And you know, I think earlier, I don't remember if it was Matt or if it was Scott who talked about his his tendency to make a cover that is so perfect at this late phase that it sounds like his, but only a fool breaks his own heart is not only a <laughs> glorious cover. 
But what I love so much about it is that it's it's almost like he he chose it just to make you realize that that's the place where Barry Gordy and the Jackson Five ripped off the chorus from "I'll Be There" for the biggest selling single in Motown history. It's "I'll Be There," you know, though "I'll Be There," just call my name and I'll be there. Only a fool breaks his own heart. It's the same song in the chorus, and you probably thought Barry Gordy and company went back and found that old chestnut too. Why do I go on fooling myself When I know you love somebody else Only a fool breaks his own heart I pretend I don't see You walking with him on the street Only a fool breaks his own heart I'll say a couple things on The Convincer, which I agree with you is... Um, uh, well, it's superb. And I You're think, a home wrecker. That's like Lou's song to open it. Yeah, uh, and, and and that's the first. Well, you've got a, you've got that cover in there, but the thing is, the songwriting here it might be the strongest songwriting of mm-hmm. all of these. If you go down that list of homewrecker, very soulful. Um, uh, lately, I've let things slide, which is it's going to be one of my top songs. Is one of his most brilliant lyrics. Uh, in in sort of the the surprises. By the way, pure George Jones. That song. It's closer to George Jones than Elvis Costello, the big George Jones fan, <laughs> ever came, in my opinion, by a wide margin. I go to the bin, I throw the laundry in, dig out the cleanest shirt. When all at once I'm seized again by exquisite hurt. That untouched takeaway I brought home has quite a lot to say The evidence is clear on every side Piled high and wide About how lately I Let things slide um, She's Got Soul, another swing romantic song Cupid Must Be Angry and Indian Queens which is a great guitar-driven one that he, I think he dreamed up sitting in the in traffic on the highway. But in a really funny way, I, it made me think a little bit, this is going to sound bizarre, but if so it goes, and sort of the randomness of some of the events in the song. Right. But those songs just are stacked on top of each other. And that's before you get to something like I'm a Mess or Has She Got a Friend or the very romantic Let's Stand and Make Love and, and I'm sorry I've mentioned every one but this this is packed with very strong songwriting. I Actually, yeah. if I can move us forward as we get toward yeah. the end here, um, At My Age is the, is the next album about uh, six years. So bigger break here between uh, 
convince her and, and act my age. And after the... Uh, he put out a pretty solid live album in between these things, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, we usually don't discuss the live albums. After The Impossible Bird, I think At My Age could be my favorite of these later career uh, albums. And this is one that, uh, like, like Jeff for Dig My Mood, this is one I had put aside and hadn't give a, given a lot of time to. And revisiting it here in preparation for the show, man... I, I was underselling how good this is. Six years off, uh, and, and Matt had mentioned how much care has been put into uh, the production, the writing of these songs in the second second era of his career, but especially here at, at My Age. This has such a relaxed Americana feel to it, very intimate vibe to a lot of these songs. It takes a lot of work to make something sound as comfortable as these songs on At My Age. Storybook love made for one another Now she treats you just like a brother And you don't know what you've done Or even how to make it right People change That's the long and short of it Prepare yourself for it Get big, people change Okay, and you show my notes, Scott. I just I want to point out, this summarizes all these records. They all feel so mature and lived in, but they never feel even the slightest bit lazy. Yep. It's such attention to the selection of the covers, the song craft, the arrangements, the production touches that are never overwhelming. It's taste is what it is. It's pure taste. And, you know, on At My Age, I think there, there are horns on these other albums, but for whatever reason, they really stick out to me on this record as just being mm -hmm. perfect, just, just tastefully position where they need to be on these tracks and a lot of the writing here he's 58 now uh, for at my age a lot of the writing here comes off as someone handing down advice to someone 30 years younger that it might be going through very similar things you look at something like hope for us which is uh if even i can find someone there's hope for all of us there's Are you saying it should have been called when i was your age uh, possibly there's people change chrissy hind does backing vocals and people change is kind of the anti-hope for us which is that sometimes people fall out of love sometimes people change and if you don't accept that fact you are setting yourself up for failure because everyone changes there's a song called the club which is, um, uh, you know, join the club of having your heart broken, essentially. You're racked with the hunger pain of a soul starved of love. All these songs with all this wisdom. And I, I really sold this record short. At My Age is another high point in this late Nick Lowe career. If you've ever walked streets sick with rain In the cold black night racked with the hunger pain Of a soul starved of love Join the club if you've ever come to and seen that you've been living a dream One in which no one can hear you scream Join the club, join the club Your story stays outside the door Cause they've heard it all before In the club This club's not for the happy types Caught up in pinks and yellows It's for... I want to throw in also, there's still some wickedness in Nick Lowe with I Trained Her to Love Me. Yes! yes. Which is a very barbed 
song but that it, I don't know if every one of his fans liked, but is I so love that. well. That was my salad. It yeah. isn't. It isn't. It isn't because yeah, the lyrics are very sharp and barbed, as Matt points out. But you get to the very end, Matt, and what does he say? I'm bound to wind up one lonely, twisted old man. Like he recognizes <laughs> what he's doing is just going to end up in a really bad yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you guys! You guys stole my notes. I love. I trained her to love me. That to me is is where like there's a there's a that's a bit of the old love still in there. Uh-huh. But as as you point out, now he realizes the end. I'm a sick Twitter bitch. I'm going to die alone and afraid, aren't I? <laughs> well, one time one cut up rough and told me I only do this because I can. And I'm bound to wind up. One lonely, twisted old man But look out, here comes a prime contender for my agenda If ever there was one And I'm gonna train her to love me Until it's time to do what must be done Train her to love me And I'm gonna start working on another I love almost all of these songs. Like Rome wasn't building the day is a great song. People change is the other one I was going to point out, but you know Scott pointed it out as well. But I do love the Chrissy Hine cameo. Yeah. Um, I just uh, you know I'm uh, I'm constantly impressed at how he he does this. I think um, unless you are do you have anything, Matt? You want to say about at my age before we move on to I guess the the final two records? I suppose. No, uh, the uh, I'll throw in a plug for not too long ago, which is another great horn song that I like a lot. But no, you guys mm-hmm. have covered it all. Well, this brings us to the old magic. This is—I don't think there are any of these records are bad. This is my least favorite of the late period ones. Yes. Maybe it's a Agreed. little too sedate for my taste. Agreed. What were you guys going to say? Uh, no, I—that's I, this time you stole my notes, Jeff. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, of these, I guess five that we're kind of grouping together here late. I think this is the the, the least successful. It's it's a it's a four year gap now from at my age. There are a couple of really good moments. I think uh, "Sensitive Man" is probably the best song here. That, uh, that piano hook is so good on that song. Yes, I just love that uh, that that tinkling piano there. And that Will Birch book tells us that uh, it's it's uh, Nick Lowe calls it the Sam Cooke song that Sam Cooke didn't do that he literally <laughs> wrote while reading a biography of Sam Cooke. So the influence there is very direct. I think "Sensitive Man" is the best song on uh, the old magic. Lately when I go to steal a kiss I feel you pulling away I know something is amiss But what it is you won't say If I've done something to upset you Believe me that was never my plan But how can I fix it Standing out here in the cold I'm a sensitive man You don't always have to speak. You can say it with a look. Check out Time's Pretty Good. Another one of those songs, Matt, set to that Johnny Cash you mm-hmm. know, beat mm-hmm. uh, on the old magic. But, uh, but this one is definitely a step below these past few efforts. Yeah, I, I like House for Sale, too. Um, but I think there are a couple songs here. Uh, Stoplight Roses is one of these for me where 
he, he's identified a great um, idea or concept. The melody doesn't really carry it through. And I think, as Jeff says, it, it, it's it's just a, it's a bit of a sedate album. There's not enough variety in here. So high quality songwriting here, but you can sort of feel um, as we'll, as his career sees partly through unfortunate circumstances, this kind of pop route he's taken is kind of coming to its end, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, this is the last album, uh, at least to date, of Nick Lowe's career, unless, unless that is, my friends, you want to talk about his inevitable and obligatory Christmas album, and I kind of want to do, because two years yep. after The Old Magic, he released Quality Street, I love the title, Quality Street, a seasonal selection for all of the family. And, you know, everyone's got to do a, a Christmas album, right? So this is his, and... Uh, it's actually surprisingly good. It reminds me of Bob Dylan's Christmas album, which like turned out to have a couple of like ridiculously funny numbers that everyone likes. It was like, you know, Christmas must be here, right? Uh, well, this one has, I think we all agree that ironically enough, the two best songs on this record are the ones that Nick Lowe wrote himself and snuck yeah. onto it, which is Christmas at the airport and uh, I was born in Bethlehem. But it's actually just fun to see him taking very non-traditional Christmas ideas and then putting, I think, is, is there's another one that he wrote with Ry Cooter that's an older one called A Dollar Short of Happy that's in here uh -huh. as well. But I really, I really love uh, Christmas at the Airport, and I actually find this record to be shockingly a lot more interesting as a Christmas album than I normally uh, would think. We didn't cover it when we did our Christmas-themed stuff because I simply wasn't aware of it at the time. So apologies to the fans. It's very good. We play a ton of tracks on the old college radio station here when we flip the switch and the students are gone and I play Christmas music. There's a whole lot of the stuff from Quality Street. Uh, I like Old Toy Trains, his cover of the old Roger Miller uh, tune. And then, uh, oh, he, the last song on the record is I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Roy Wood from The Move oh. uh, did that song originally, and that's a great way to close this record. But it's, it is one of those that always... Every year, annually, gets a full spin around Christmas time around my house. Outside the taxi window, on the way to catch my flight, I notice snowflakes playing in the ever-failing light when he dropped me at departure. It was really coming down Deep and crisp and even It settled on the ground It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport All the planes are grounded And the fog is rolling in It looks like Christmas Christmas at the airport Let the festivities begin. Christmas at the airport is a classic Nick Lowe sensibility and the kind of thing that only he would see. But if there's an experience that speaks universally about Christmas uh, to us at this day, it's probably that one. And uh, I was born in Bethlehem is... It's very hard to find new things to say about Christmas, but it's just a beautiful, very simple guitar-driven, uh, uh, beautifully sung and thought-through song that uh, I think is very, very uh, powerful and showing that his skills are as strong as ever. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about just he, he's done a few yeah. things since then? Look, yeah. And before yeah. as we wrap it up, you know, and, and, and this is the end of his actual recording career, but he, he's been out and about since then. So, Matt, yeah. Yeah, look, I continue to follow him. He's not done any more albums, and he said he doesn't want to do albums, but he has uh, taken up with this uh, kind of West Coast surf band called Lost Straight Jackets. Who are fantastic. I love yeah. Lost Straight Jackets. Yeah, I, I know them well, and, actually. And, and, they're, and, and, and what's interesting about them uh, is, you know, we talked about how he was in this very pop-driven uh, kind of path. In some ways, he's mostly doing a live act, but he, he's, he has dropped uh, some EPs with them, mm -hmm. and they've reinvigorated him a little bit as sort of a, a, a rocker uh, by backing him up with guitar-heavy arrangements uh, on a few new songs. He, 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 he's tended in the last few years to write songs here and there uh, and sometimes do covers. He's written a couple of great songs. One that I think is, is, is up there in the same class is called Blue on Blue. I don't know if you guys got a chance to hear it. Um, but it I'm is not. a it's a lovely song, and I will quote for you. Uh, uh, it's a very good country song, but just so you know, Nick Lowe's mind is still working. It's called Blue on Blue, mm -hmm. and there's a line where he says, "In my mind, I'm on the end of a ball of twine that she jerks from time to time." Time for Blue on Blue. He's still playing around with images in, in clever ways. It's a very good um, concert song. You're only happy when you see me cry. I ought to leave, but how can I tie to blue on blue? Blue on blue, how has it come to this? You're kissing my one true desire. I long each waking. a couple of he did one called tokyo bay which is kind of a mm -hmm. twist on an old surf rocker and he seems very happy and comfortable to do that and it's just a quick word in the background of the fact that we mentioned many of his albums were out of print at different times in the last few years all these old albums have come back into print and he's lived to that period of his career where he's lionized by this generation as a songwriter so he toured with wilco and if you dig it, Wilco has done some covers with him, and he's become this revered figure. And so he's still doing quite a lucrative business yep. out there, touring and playing songs. And I saw him a few weeks ago here. And, and, and these guys are great at backing him up and, and great at bringing new life and pushing forward and not just being an oldies act mm -hmm. for him, continuing to reinvent himself. Um, so uh, another album doesn't seem likely, but you never know. He seems capable of putting one out. Got married, had a kid at like 53, I think. Uh, we should mention one of the reasons that an album is perhaps unlikely is his main collaborator for that second act of his career, Bobby Irwin, Passed died away. in Passed 2015. Away. And that was really hard for Nick Lowe. He, he spoke at the, at the, at the funeral at the yeah. wake and, and barely could get through his remarks. And for a while after that, had very little interest in doing anything music related so the fact that those straight jackets come through and sort of revitalize him in a way that matt described is a little bit of a blessing because i'm not sure he would have pulled out of that himself yeah so even... neil brockbank died too mm -hmm. uh, not long after yeah. that so well straight jackets kind of filled it in what's nice on the tour that i saw that he's just wrapped up though is he's opening for 
Elvis Costello, yep. and it's nice to see the two of them out there together again. And Aging gracefully, both of them, yeah. Yeah, well, and you know, what you see, it's, it's funny, when you see Nick Lowe speak and talk to, what you see under all this after these years, he's a very kind of uh, proper English gentleman. <laughs> 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 with this slightly, with yes, this slightly streak, but he, he partly seems embarrassed about his, his whole past, but, and he comes out, he entertains, it's, it's, he's, he's, and, and he sounds great. He sounds as, as strong as he sounded. So no, no, I don't see, I, when I saw him, I didn't see any decline there yet. It's just a fascinating career. He pulls together so many threads, you know, of, of entire movements in the musical scene all the way throughout from the 70s, throughout the 80s and 90s. And it's, it's uh, as, as Matt says, it's actually just a feel good story to see him like, you know, finally rediscovered and revered by the, you know, the people who were so deeply influenced by him and uh, also to see him still out there making great music. Oh, we've always liked him here on political and that's it that's a look at nick lowe's music and career here on political beats we thank our guest matt murray recently departed editor of the wall street journal now on assignment for its parent company news corp and we come to the part of the show where we give you the two albums you should own and the five songs you must hear from Nick Lowe. Are, have we decided we're all doing this uh, multi-step process in which we split this up Y'all can up do into, what you want to do, but I know what I must do. We are, so. we are splitting this up, at least two-thirds of us. We'll see what Matt does at all. Okay, no, two. I'm, I'm going to leave it to you guys. Right. I, I, right. I accepted at the beginning that this was a nearly impossible task, and uh, so I didn't even know. Uh, As the hosts I, and the nerds, we got a little weirder. Yeah, I, you, I, 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 I bow to your uh, prerogatives. Um, you know, look, to me, there's at least probably six Nick Lowe albums everybody should own. But I, having a sense of where you guys will go for my albums, uh, I'll pick Labor of Lust. Um, uh, both of those early first two albums are, are pretty essential, but I think I lean toward Labor of Lust as the better album. Um, and it's really tough at the end, but I, 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 and it's a very close vote for me, but I think I'm actually going to go uh, with The Convincer. Uh, I said that Impossible Bird is a perfect album, and I believe that. I also think you guys will go for that, but I think The Convincer has such strong songwriting uh, underneath it and is a great discovery that I, I think it's worth picking up. Um, for songs, I've tried to pick then songs not on those albums just so you get some variety. So my songs, and I've tried to think about across his whole career, so for my five songs, I do So It Goes, uh, When I Write the Book, uh, What's Shaken on the Hill, I'll pull out from that long period in the 80s where there are chestnuts, so I, I think that's that's worth having. Um, uh, the Beast in Me, uh, again, uh, probably the greatest song uh, I think he ever wrote. Um, and... Uh, I will go for my last one with Failed Christian, which is a cover, I know, but which I just think is a great uh, and powerful performance. So uh, that's my five. All right. So Jeff and I have split this into two lists because we're the hosts and we can do what we want. Uh, this, so this will be a, a list of Nick Lowe-specific, Nick Lowe-branded music, and, and then a separate list of Nick Lowe-adjacent music. So on the adjacent list... Two albums, the new favorites of Brinsley Schwartz, the last Brinsley Schwartz album, which 
uh, is produced by Nick Lowe. And I, 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 I for, in my mind, is far and away the best album from, from that band. And then Seconds of Pleasure from Rockpile, of course. Uh, the songs from the non-Nick Lowe-branded music, When I Write the Book from Rockpile's album, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, uh, the, the Brinsley Schwartz version, uh, Surrender to the Rhythm, the early Brinsley track, uh, Never Been in Love from, from Dave Edmonds, from Wax, uh, uh, Wax on tra- Tracks on Wax 4, <laughs> and, uh, and then from um, Repeat When Necessary, Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Billy Bremner penned tune. Nick Lowe, specific. Nick Lowe branded music here. The two albums I will tell you to own. Uh, I, I think everyone should own a copy of Labor of Lust. And I cannot recommend highly enough that everybody go back and hear The Impossible Bird, which is now nearly 30 years old. But those two albums are are perfection. They really are perfection. And I've got to get down to five tracks from Nick Lowe's career, which is just Good luck. impossible, right? Uh, so so it goes, uh, his first, and still one of his best. Uh, Love the Sound of Breaking Glass, Born Fighter from Labor of Lust, and um, I'll, I'll take one from The Impossible Bird, and I, I think Jeff's going to say the same thing, but I can't resist. Shelly, my love, that melody in the chorus is magical. It will lift you up and take you away. And then my last track that you've got to hear is one we did not mention at all during the show. I love my label in the history of great <laughs> tracks about record companies. My favorite thing about I love my label is such a Nick Lowe cherry on top of the Sunday is the chorus is I love my label. And logically, you think the next line should be right. And my label loves me, right? I love my label and my label loves me. No, in Nick Lowe's world, it's I love my label and my label has high hopes in me, meaning I love my label. My label hopes I sell a lot of records. It's a different relationship. Go here. I love my label. Those are my five. Oh, yes. I love my label. By the way, I feel like saying what's also what's even funnier is he's both a musician and for a while was the label as well. <laughs> yeah, he was a producer. He did everything. I mean, he was the house man there. It was hilarious. All right, okay. For my non-low, for my non-low picks, the albums would be Silver Silver Pistol, which is the third Brinsley Schwartz album, and it would obviously also be Seconds of Pleasure by Rock Pile. Uh, the top five low adjacent songs. I'd say Funk Angel from uh, Brinsley's second album, Despite It All. What's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding? Obviously, from New Favorites. And then a bunch of Dave Edmonds tracks. Here comes The Weekend. We didn't really get to talk about it, but it's a Nick Lowe song by any other name. Just put into his mouth. Same with Little Darling. 
a little more soulful, but a beautiful like Nick Lowe song that hides its origins. And then finally, I'll say uh, uh, for the Nick Lowe adjacent section, I'll say Girls Talk, which was written not by Nick Lowe, but by Elvis Costello. But as I pointed out, wow, it was really lit, written by Nick Lowe. And it's just the greatest production he ever did. As for Lowe's himself, I, I'm choosing for maximum spread here. So my two albums are The Jesus of Cool and Impossible Bird. And I'm not going to pick any songs from those two albums just because you need everything on those two albums, including all the songs that Scott and Matt just mentioned. For me, however, my top five will be uh, from two from Jesus of Cool. First is Cracking Up and Big Kick Plain Scrap. I love those songs so much. Uh, third would be Zulu Kiss from Nick the Knife. Uh, and then two from the later period, I think I'm going to go with, uh, since I already mentioned Impossible Burden Hole and Shelly My Love, you know, Scott's correct. That, that could be my favorite one from that late era, but I gave the album. So instead, I'll say Faithless Lover from Dig My Mood. And uh, I'll end with a song that I didn't get a chance to discuss. Uh, Matt mentioned it briefly, but I think Cupid Must Be Angry from The Convincer is one of the great late period Nick Lowe songs of all time. It sounds like it could have come from Labor of Lust, frankly, for that matter, but never with this sort of perfectly lucid production. There are synth horns in this song, friends, and somehow they work, okay? Reach into your quiver one last time and deliver. Uh, that's what Nick Lowe does on that track. Uh, and that's been a wonderful episode to record. I know I've had it coming Cause I've blown his every plan He must have said I've had it with this foolish man So Cupid, if you're listening The political beats look at the music and career of Nick Lowe, and I'll point out that uh, we named uh, 25 tracks, and none of us <laughs> picked his only top 40 hit, Cruel to be Kind, which, nope. frankly, you should also hear, but this is a bre the breath of material leaves us where we are. Oh. Matt Murray, thank you so much for joining us for a third time in talking about one of our favorite artists, Nick Lowe. Thank you both. This was really fun. Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD on Twitter. We've got a, uh, a monthly Patreon episode coming up right. real soon. Actually. Exclusive content coming uh, very soon after this, and so we'll go right from this to prepping for that. Yeah. Uh, my name is right. Scott Bertram. Find me there at Scott Bertram. Uh, you can find us on Patreon too. Patreon.com/slash/PoliticalBeats. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free with entry-level, mid-level, and upper-level availability there. Patreon.com/slash/PoliticalBeats. Subscribe to the feed, get those new episodes, find us at nationalreview.com. We're on Facebook, find us on Twitter, at political underscore beats, or I guess I have to say find us on X now, which sounds dirty. Uh, this has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.